This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Happy Tuesday morning to you, and I hope uh, things are going well for you. Boy, uh, we're back. We had a day off yesterday because of Pioneer Day here in the state of Utah. And by golly, we took it. But uh, we're excited to be with you today. Got a lot to get into, a lot to talk about, including health care. Today, there will be a vote on whether they should vote, a pre-vote to the vote. It's such an important vote uh, because they've struggled getting the health care vote to repeal and replace done. Now they're going to have a pre-vote. And it's so important they're bringing John McCain out of his his uh, healthy trying to what's it called uh, recuperate from surgery. Yeah, has he had the surgery? He's had one surgery. That's for the blood clot. Yeah. Now they're dealing with the tumor. So they haven't replaced the health care plan, but they've replaced a lot of people in their cabinet. Yeah. In fact, they spicy, had no problem doing that. Spicer gone. I guess he's not a cabinet member, but Spicer's gone. That's kind of sad. Now what are we going to talk about? Hmm. Scaramucci. Is that his name? Yes. That's going to be fun. He seemed very upbeat and happy and super happy. Sounds like an opera singer's name. It does it? Scaramucci? Oh, yeah. Great. Like Pavarotti. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's quite as the world turns. It's a big soap opera there at the White House. Spicy out, Scaramucci in. And the reports were they talked to several people that are communication professionals, PR-type people who yeah. have ran big campaigns or worked in con- with congressional leaders and you know people that would have the experience. They didn't want to be involved. So they hired yeah. a head fund manager. Well, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. If you need a communications director, you go to the hedge funds. I mean, those people. But he was successful. They, he sold his hedge fund, hundred very, million bucks. He's been very pro-Trump in the world and yeah, in, in not the on media. Twitter. Well, he had a bad, <laughs> he had a bad moment. He's been deleting a lot of past tweets over the last several years that he has you know gone through. Who and, hasn't? Right. Who hasn't? You know, hedges. And, we don't need no stinking hedges. I, I don't think that's the hedge they're talking. Like I don't. Oh, okay. I think. Um, one of the things, too, is he's down on – President Trump is down on Jeff Sessions. Yes. So now there's talk of, you know, Rudy. maybe Rudy coming back. Rudy, maybe, maybe Ted Cruz. Yeah. Who would work See, for now, the president because he seems to beat up the people that he struggles with? Chris pro- Christie is available. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, Chris Christie tried to let President Trump use his phone on election night. That's just, It's too many, too many germs. So he's out. That's really the, the yeah. story. Is that that's why Chris Christie fell out of favor, um, but with uh, with Rudy Rudy Giuliani is heading up the the cybersecurity effort of the federal government. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. He's, he's trying to to, to fortify yeah. all of our government's computer systems. Well, because when you go when you when you think of cybersecurity, you think of Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you do, and. Jeff Sessions is getting beat up because he recused himself from the Russian investigation because he had had a handshake with a Russian diplomat slash spy. Well, that and the person being investigated is someone you had publicly supported right. in a political manner. So you're you're kind of 
on his side. So you may want to recuse yourself when it comes to legal issues. But then Giuliani apparently on CNN said Sessions was right to recuse himself. Right. So you, you got to, you know, you're not going to bring in Giuliani to fix this problem. There's people need the president needs to understand people need to recuse themselves. One says who? <laughs> Do they, though? Apparently not. Anyway, it's it's a soap opera. The soap opera continues. We'll get to all of that exciting news. Plus, we're going to be talking about health care. What really needs to take place when fixing health care is more than repeal and replace some legislation created by our great legislators. Um, the health care system itself probably needs to be re- reevaluated. It seems like we tend to be really good at diagnosing people. Uh, but not anything well, – not really great as, as preventing anything. Can they put something in there about not having to wait in the waiting room for 45 minutes? Yeah. Or should we probably ought to put something in there about not having your baby in the lobby of a hospital or in the doors, the, the electric doors in the waiting room? The, what's it called? The, the Yeah, the, the lobby of the – I think it should say in there, if you have your baby in the lobby, uh, half off your bill. That's a great idea. I don't know who would have their baby in the lobby. You know, it just seems like you're cutting it very close. Jeff, any word on that? Any thoughts on that? <laughs> that was, you know, that's definitely the way we wanted to do it, Matt. Yeah, you wanted to. Yeah. If you could, you wanted to keep the excitement up. Yeah. If we could do it all over again, we would definitely want to have that baby in the lobby. <laughs> lobby babies are amazing. Anywho, uh, we'll continue that discussion, of course, plus um, other other fun news and headlines, empty news as well, the things that you didn't even know you needed to know. We'll get to those as well. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? A tenth person found in the back of a sweltering tractor trailer in Texas on Sunday has died after being taken to the hospital in San, uh, San Antonio. Eight male immigrants were found dead in the trailer when officials arrived and a ninth person died at the hospital later that day. People said that the uh, victims are believed to have died as a result of heat exposure or asphyxiation. Nearly 20 other people found in the trailer were taken to the hospital in critical condition. Officials are investigating the tragedy as a human trafficking case. The driver said he didn't know the people were in the back of the truck. He has been uh, charged with uh, trafficking. And, have you know, uh. he could he could face um, the death penalty over being yeah. involved. Wow. It's very, very serious, but apparently this happens quite a bit. There were how many in the car, in the truck? Thirty. They're saying around. The number keeps moving. The stories I keep seeing. This one says nearly twenty other people were found in the trailer. Uh. Were taken to the hospital. He had he had eight people dead. A ninth has died, and a tenth has died. And there were all these other people that ran out when they opened the truck. Oh, trailer, I bet. You yeah. know? And it was just there's like one hole in the truck that they were rotating through to breathe fresh air and all kinds of just horrible Holy details. Cow. And they're just in this parking lot at a Walmart. Tragic. Tragic. And this is why, uh, and so apparently this happens quite a bit. They find the trucks, people are in them, and just, they send them back, right? And so you don't hear about it until something horrible happens and makes the news. Some employees of a Wisconsin vending machine company will be able to purchase food with the wave of a hand. Three Square Market announced over the weekend that it it will offer implants their uh, radio frequency ID microchips into the hands of willing employees. Ooh. The chips are as small as a grain of rice and would essentially replace key cards, credit cards, and phone apps. Implanted between the thumb and forefinger, the microchip will be able to unlock doors, pay for break room snacks, serve as a business card, and store medical information. Mm. The, mar- the uh, company expects at least 50 employees to voluntarily undergo the $300 procedure. 
for which the company will pick up the tab. The implants will begin as soon as August 1st. The company is claiming to be the first in the U.S. to implant these chips into employees. What That's do you think, Matt? just creepy. That's creepy. I don't care who you are. That's creepy. Yeah. Hey, I mean, imagine that you're at your new higher orientation and they'll say, we'll be doing plant implement implanting next week. Like that, I mean, that this chip thing is crazy. You're to get, not implanting. To get in our building, we have a, a swipe card, right? Yeah. You swipe the card, that opens the door. Now they want you to take your hand, put it on a pad, and it, it'll read the chip that's I know, in your that's hand. That's weird. A but, chip but, but think about in your hand. When you get fired, the separation process, as they call it, will also involve minor surgery to get that out of your hand because it's I company quit. property. Well, not till we get your chip out there. <laughs> when Larry. we get the knife, we'll cut it out. Uh, what's this? What's happening to us? I don't know. Now I'm hungry. Yeah, well, I think we're talking different chips, Jeff. Hmm. Other news: Google's parent company Alphabet beat expectations for its second quarter, earning the top and bottom lines reporting revenue of twenty-six billion dollars the last quarter, up twenty-one percent year over year, and above the twenty-five billion expected. But investors who bid the stock up nearly thirty percent this year wanted more out of the company, and so the shares slid after the announcement. So your mm. company announced twenty-six billion in the quarter, but your stock falls. Yeah. That seems weird. Because the people that invested in you were expecting a little bit more out of you. But the, how many companies are there that have no money made? Yeah. But they're booming. They're not. Like Snapchat? Like Snapchat. Not anymore. Snapchat was. Now they're falling yeah. off the, the planet. Twitter. There. Yeah. Yeah. Alphabet stock fell about 3% in after hour tradings on Monday. So. Wow. That's the uh, problem with the stock market. Did you say Alphabet stock? That's the parent company of Google. Uh, other news, it was supposed to be the event of the summer. That's yeah. That's when Michael Phelps was going to race a great white shark. Oh, yeah. Remember that story? Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. supposed to happen over the weekend? Yeah. Don't tell me he ate him. No. The problem was the fans had high hopes for this because they're like, wow, he's going to race the shark. But they didn't realize the fine print, however, that the uh, New York Post documents uh, the disappointment in realizing the 32-year-old Olympic athlete is part of the Phelps versus shark Great Gold versus Great White special on the mm. Discovery Channel was pitted against a computer simulated version of the Superfish, whose swim rates have been calculated during previous in water races. Hold it. So you're not dropping Phelps in next to an actual shark. It's Phelps Boo. against a computer. Did people really think that he would be just in the water with a shark? Apparently. Yeah. It says, wow. Why wouldn't you? Disappointed, let down, even biggest scam of 2017 were just a few of the pejoratives hurled on social media after viewers realized that Phelps wouldn't be appearing side by side with the finned foe, as the story says. More <laughs> like Shark Week, W-E-A-K. Yeah. Complained one fan on Twitter riffing on the Discovery Channel's popular event. Uh, with a time of 18 seconds... 18.7 in the 50-meter preliminary, Phelps outfitted in a special wetsuit and a monofin. Yeah. Apparently, he had a fin of some kind. Lost to a hammerhead who had a 15.1 in the 50-meter. Uh. But he won, uh. technically, over a reef shark. Oh, yeah. Reef sharks are slow and pokey. Phelps, Lazy. Phelps Lazy. lost the 100-meter competition, one of the, the, his world record specialties against the Great White. 38 seconds to uh, Phelps' is 36 the shark went 36, Phelps went 38. That was according to TMZ, just so you know. Wow. I mean, if you're going to say he's going to race the shark, then he needs to get in the pool with the shark. Right. You can't do this You can't do this via technology. And you need to put a few drops of blood in there. That's before, right. You so. need to coat his... I mean, you want to see Phelps race his best time. 
Coat him in blood. <laughs> throw him in. Throw him in a pool with a shark. And hey, you can even have the pool be chlorinated. That might. That's a disadvantage to the shark. Right. They're not used to chlorinated. Throws them off. They'll just suffocate. Yeah. But you know what? That a suffocating shark would still go after Phelps. It'd probably mm. be the best numbers you'd ever see. Plus, great ratings. Yeah. It would be like a debate with Donald Trump. <laughs> just throw Hillary in there. But less blood. Yeah, but you remember how Trump kind of stalked Hillary? Do do yeah, do do. Like float around behind kind of her, always standing yeah, yeah. behind her, looming. Mm. Um, yeah. So boy, I tell you, yeah, that's so called the bait and switch right there. Absolutely. So Shark Week was in fact week, apparently. Week W E A K week. Speaking of week, um, be careful. I, I tell you guys this all the time. Be careful when you're quoting people like Albert Einstein. Mm. Because I don't know if you heard about Ivanka had an attempt to quote Albert Einstein and it backfired. Wrong. I mean, it's hard. Albert's a smart guy and he's got a lot of great quotes. But um, a a tweet fired off in 2013 by Ivanka, apparently the White House advisor and daughter of President Trump, came back to haunt her Monday. She attempted to quote theoretical physicist Albert Einstein. This was her quote. If the facts don't fit the theory, change the facts. Albert Einstein. Hmm. The problem is that's that's not how the quote actually goes. Wrong. Because if the facts don't change the theory, change the facts. That doesn't make sense. No. Well, you'd probably need to change, change the theory. Change the theory. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it got her into a lot of trouble. Now, the general thought of politicians. Yeah. Across the board, all politicians that would fit. Yeah. That's, that's what people kind of have the stereotype. They sort of feel that way when they talk about politics. They're, Alternative facts. <laughs> yeah. You just change the facts. It'll be fine. They're, they're actually they're, – they're coming out now. Um, a lot of people are coming out in defense of Einstein saying he never said anything like that. Yeah, a lot of things get attributed and uh, they never actually said that. You know. The, uh, it was George down the street. It was George. Yeah. That's Do, the problem. Does it say who actually said that? No. It's just something online. They, they just, that, it wasn't Einstein. Right. It was, it, I think it was in Donald's book. Oh. The Art of the Deal? The Art of the Deal. Oh. But now you're embarrassed, right? But now was people she, are reading your Twitter from 13 years ago or from three years ago, four years ago. Well, you can't backtrack. No. Not well, in the Trump family. At what point does Twitter <laughs> like not count anymore when it comes to your... No, it always counts. Really? Yeah. Huh. Here, by the way, there's other quotes attributed to Einstein that have been um, on the same – just on, in the same kind of genre as as Ivanka's. Here's one. Is anyone else only getting three bars of signal? I mm. hate Verizon, but I'm locked in for two more years. Albert, Albert Einstein. Einstein. Mm. Well. You know what, though? I mean, facts has fewer letters in it than theory. So maybe she just ran out of characters. Yeah. But it's Twitter. Yeah. Here's one by Gandhi. If you don't get what you want, resist with force. Mahatma Gandhi. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, here's a great one. I did not know was attributed to Genghis Khan. Oh, really? You're going to love he's this He's quoted? One. Yeah, he's quoted too. Wow. Uh, you had me at hello. <laughs> really? Genghis Khan. Here's one. Don't look back in anger. It's uh, by Panda Express. I think that's Panda Express. Oh. Yeah. That doesn't change the wisdom. That's one of Cole's um, 
what are they called? Fortunes. Grease, grease-covered fortunes. <laughs> Greasy fortunes. Yeah, there's, so there's a lot of great uh, quotes out there by a lot of wonderful leaders, but that one attributed to um, the great Albert Einstein from Ivanka is not factual. If the facts don't fit the theory, change the facts. That is not an Albert Einstein quote. Anywho, you can't be perfect. Come on. You got to be able to make mistakes once in a while, especially You're wrong. back in 2013 even. Crazy stuff. Hey, up next, we will be talking uh, with George Wang about health care. We talk about it. We try to fix it. million things we could fix. But there's going to be a lot more to fix than just actually changing a law. Maybe we ought to look at the entire approach to health care. All that here up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Talk about good. BYU Radio. This is John mowing the lawn back and forth, back and forth. This is Mary sitting in rush hour traffic and sitting. And this is Fred. Fred's typing on his computer for a very long time. If your theater of life needs an upgrade, head to the Utah Shakespeare Festival. All nine dynamic plays of it right next to Utah's famous national parks. The Tony Award-winning Utah Shakespeare Festival. It's the greater escape, and you know you need one. Visit bar.org for tickets. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, many people believe that the only way to good national and personal health is to change our current health care laws with repeal and replace. We've heard that over and over again. The thing is that there are many avenues to good health. And joining us today to uh, walk us through some other views of um, medicine that we might want to look at, other than just legislating health care, we, we might want to reevaluate the entire system to create more of an integrative care. And joining us today to talk about it is Dr. Um, George Wang. He is uh, a, a now certified in integrative medicine, acupuncture, traditional Chinese medicine, and is a geriatrician and an integrative medicine physician and adjunct professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Wang, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What an interesting, um, you know, time in our lives where we hear all of our our leaders, our congressional and uh, Senate leaders, you know, working, trying to figure out a way to to, I guess, create a healthier health care system for us. But in the end, the bigger problem may not be, you know, uh, the repeal and replace. It may simply be how we look at health care today. And maybe we're not looking at it with such an integrative approach. Talk to us, Dr. Wang, about uh, today's approach, you know, kind of status quo as it is versus what you would propose we should do with our health care system. Yes. So I think uh, many of us as uh, healthcare consumers, when we navigate it and experience the healthcare system, we we are seen by doctors who are trained in conventional medicine and uh, essentially the the clinical training that the physicians and healthcare providers receive are in such a way that we view the human body as sort of, as sort of almost like a machine with fixable parts, and we break down those parts into smaller and smaller pieces um, and organ systems, molecules, 
and uh, and we have treatment modalities out of our toolbox uh, to fix those disease body parts. And, and so most of what we have in our toolbox is medications, uh, invasive treatment procedures, surgeries, um, which have certainly helped save many lives. Yeah. And uh, right, and certainly there's um, a role for uh, medications in many situations, uh, particularly in acute situations. But uh, in the long term, health is created not just out of of that paradigm. Mm. We have to think about health before we start having the we start have the, having those diseases, and um, certainly there are talks about prevention, disease prevention, and health promotion. But I think we still have a long way to go, and um, and I think that there needs to be a paradigm shift in the way we think about health in the current healthcare system. In, in that, instead of viewing the human body as smaller and smaller fixable parts, we ought to look at the individuals as whole persons, mm. and we are, you know, we are living beings with mind and body, and and some also uh, 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 believe spirit, and 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 when we speak about body, mind, and spirit in an inclusive sense, we are considering what's the, what are most vital to a person's livelihood, what's what are most important for a person uh, in, in his or her life. So we, we it's interesting because yeah. we broke it down into like cardiology, rheumatology, pulmon, pulmonology, neurology, orthopedics. That's our parts, but you're saying maybe a better a more integrated approach would be um, looking at, at humans as not their parts, but their mind, body, spirit, and figuring integrated approaches to dealing with those levels. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, the, the 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 way that the specialties have have uh, developed is it's a reflection of what we call the 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 reductionism of modern uh, medicine and uh, the what would be a better way to view health is to as I said to look at the whole person fundamentally mind and body uh, to reduce what we call the fragmentation of care uh, and so instead of uh, for example if, if someone has um, develops high blood pressure, which then leads to uh, heart disease, instead of uh, focusing on just treating the blood pressure and just treating the heart, maybe we should take a step back and look at the whole person. What did, what happened to lead to the high blood pressure and the heart disease? Hmm. Um, for example, if, if the person is leading a very stressful lifestyle uh, as Many of us are nowadays um, having stresses from from work, family, uh, uh, social lives. 
that could lead to high blood pressure. Uh, that could lead to a, a dietary habit that, that might not be as conducive to heart health uh, and health of the entire body. And so we we take a step back and look at the whole person. Uh, perhaps there are ways we could uh, help uh, reduce the stress, and uh, and that in turn would reduce the the their the research that shows reducing stress improves the immune system, improves the inflammation, which is associated with many chronic diseases, uh, and that uh, in turn leads to can potentially lead to better uh, uh, eating habits, uh, that, which in turn can lead to better heart health and health of the entire person and just well-being overall. Because otherwise he would show up at the emergency room, uh, maybe with high blood pressure, maybe with chest pain or whatever, and then be sent to a cardiologist. But he really, in the end, could also need... Uh, some focus on his stress reduction, psychology, maybe uh, psychiatric help if we break it into that, diet, um, plus every other system that would be impacted by uh, stress and high blood pressure. So, I mean, it, it seems like it makes sense, but then it also seems like how will we how do we change such a system dr wang when it when there's so much money being made um by the pills that are created to eliminate that symptom um or the the uh a mentality with our doctors of you know they all have their procedures they all kind of have the the money they make on their one or two given procedures based on their focused area how, how do you ever change such a whole system I mean, how do you change the system to become a whole system? Uh, I think we, you've touched a fundamental question, and uh, I don't think there's one simple answer to that, but having a conversation such as we're having right now, even uh, on the air, this such conversations are a crucial first step to not just educate the public, but also to start this type of conversation with the healthcare system and the healthcare providers and the, and the trainings. Um, I know certainly when I started medical school and, and did my residency, uh, I was not exposed to this type of thinking, to this type of, uh, of view of, of health. And, um, but now there are more and more um, this type of thinking infused into clinical training. Uh, we still have a long ways to go, but uh, there are more and more medical schools that are considering health in an integrative way. And, um, uh, and by, by, by integrative, we mean making the best evidence of not just conventional medicine, the way it's practiced now, but also the best evidence for other complementary uh, modalities of of treatment uh, of disease prevention, huh. and so, for example, uh, there are academic institutions that have now integrative uh, health centers. Hmm. Uh, there are academic institutions that now have uh, what we call teaching kitchens, which are. Uh, designed to 
educate um, the the public healthcare consumers about healthy uh, lifestyles, healthy cooking uh, as a way to you know sort of to prescribe uh, healthy eating mm. as the primary means of health creation rather than prescribing medications as the first line of treatment. Again, we're speaking with Dr. George Wang, who is a geriatrician and integrative medicine physician, also adjunct assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University, about integrative medicine. Uh, Really, it's, I mean, I guess the interesting thing about it is we are talking about it finally, and um, I just had a bout with uh, what ended up being gallbladder issue, a gallbladder issue, but Boy, I had no idea that there were surgeons that pretty much specialize in gallbladder surgery or pancreatitis or um, – I mean they're so specialized. And what I didn't realize is it really becomes their bread and butter. They they, they get very good at doing one or two or three things. Um, is it – so this idea of being holistic would mean that you'd have to be you, – you, would you have to be kind of a master of many areas – to to create it a holistic approach or just generally always be looking to the whole system as the problem and the solution i i think uh the one doesn't have to to be a certainly a specialist in 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 everything but uh, one has to have the view of of uh, the, the the forest instead of of just the trees mm. Uh, so, and that's the role of a primary care uh, provider, uh, whose whose uh, most important job is to view the to take care of the person that, as a whole person, and then uh, con- depending on the needs of of the patient, the person, the healthcare consumer, then if he if they are not able to address a particular situation, then refer to a specialist, but the the way that the healthcare system is fragmented now, it, 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 we tend to refer to specialists, um, for example, to take care of, of uh, a gallbladder issue. Uh, and and now in your experience, when you uh, went to the the surgeon and and have that taken out, have you has anyone uh, explored your your lifestyle with you? Has anyone explored how you what what makes you alive as a human being? For example, yeah, you know it was really interesting because um, my primary care physician would and does, but then I had um, I had a gallbladder attack that sent me to emergency the emergency room. And then that, then that, without really any connection to my primary care physician, they then diagnosed it, tried to figure it out. Um, then eventually they sent me to other specialists who were hopefully also communicating with my primary care physician, but not very deeply. And I honestly didn't see my primary care physician till the end of it all when I just went back for a, 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 a visit 
you know, after the whole thing was done. And the, the whole time I'm thinking, man, I really should have been going back to my primary care physician to make a lot of these decisions um, because it, they did take a month and a half to take the gallbladder out bef- between when I went to the emergency room and then went to the the care. But like you're saying, there was nobody that was looking at my whole lifestyle because what we found out is I had already gone to have other tests and was diagnosed with all of these other things before that. And in the end, it really all came down to a gallbladder issue. But it was because of stressful lifestyle and other things. So, I mean, it's yeah. it's a big it's a big problem. And I, I guess, too, that I even had doctors that were trying to save me money, trying to save me effort. Um, but in in their efforts to save me kind of money on certain procedures or things, they weren't looking holistically either, and it took a lot longer, and I was in more pain longer. Yeah, and, and um, certainly your experience is uh, not um, uncommon, uh, and uh, that uh, tells us that we do have a long ways to go in fixing the current healthcare system. Uh, but um, I think it has to start somewhere. And um, having this type of, type of conversation, uh, planting these seeds in terms of how both uh, the healthcare consumers and the healthcare providers view health and, and view disease prevention, view health creation, uh, is an important first step towards further changes. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Again, we're speaking with Dr. George Wang, and we'll continue this discussion about how to create a more holistic, integrative uh, integrative approach to medicine. That's our goal, helping you live longer and healthier lives. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM, 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we hear all of this talk back in D.C. about repeal and replace, about Obamacare, about health care costs. And yet, uh, is that really going to change your health care? Because deep down, there's there's probably bigger decisions that need to be made when it comes to creating a healthier and, and even more cost-effective uh, health care system. Joining us to talk about it is Dr. George Wang. He is a geriatrician and an integrative uh, medicine physician, also an adjunct assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Uh, and Dr. Wang is um, now certified in integrative medicine, acupuncture, and traditional Chinese medicine. We appreciate your time. Thank you again for being with us, Dr. Wang. Uh, this has uh, has been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. You bet. Uh, talk about the costs. If if we, because there's a, I guess there's a lot of money being made on on kind of the current system as far as you know we diagnosing problems, not necessarily so much preventative care that we're not necessarily focusing on as deeply as maybe we need to, or integrative care. Uh, but there is money being made on a lot of procedures, a lot of medicine, pharmaceuticals being prescribed. 
um, which seems to make a lot of companies happy. In the end, if if we could get a more integrative approach where we had body, mind, spirit, maybe more uh, being evaluated by all, all of our physicians and looking for the holistic problems, would that lower cost, do you predict, or is does that make it more you know more expensive down the road to deliver the medicine? Uh, yeah, in, in fact, there are clinical research studies that shows that such an approach, an integrative approach to healthcare, reduces the, the healthcare costs. So, for example, there was a study done at uh, by Harvard researchers that shows that a a mind body intervention actually leads to a lower use of healthcare resources and even decrease the emergency visits, emergency room visits by half. Hmm. Now, um, I, you, I can totally see that. I, I even see here at BYU um, how how hard they're trying to get us to look at our entire health, right? And if we if we would go get involved in activities, physical exercise activities, or going to classes with dietitians, that'll they'll even incentivize us. They'll pay us money to do that because they know it'll lower our healthcare costs as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and disease prevention is a much a better, better way of, of creating health than trying to tackle the problem once it has arisen. What do you um, what do you think Dr. Wang we what can we do? What can I do with my family to to maybe force the hand of my physicians a little bit more in, in taking an integrative approach? I think uh, there's in the healthcare system there's always a supply and demand and uh, if you, uh, me as healthcare consumers, if we go and ask our our doctors for more of these holistic uh, ways of treating disease, ways of uh, promoting health, then I think the healthcare system and, and the healthcare providers will have no choice but to supply more of those services to to all of us and. and I think right now, because the way that we're all trained to view disease and health, we when we go to the doctors, we we are uh, satisfied when the doctors prescribe medications for certain disease. Uh, without for our diabetes, for example, um, without going into more depth of of what we should do as a, as a human being to to live a better better and more fulfilling life so 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 for example if let's just take the heart disease which which is the number one uh problem across not in just in the u.s but in the in the world if we ask if your doctor diagnoses coronary artery disease or otherwise known as coronary heart disease um instead of uh saying, okay, I, I will take these medications, we should also ask, what else can I do to, to, to prevent the worsening of the disease? Or even, what can I do to reverse the disease? Hmm. And there are research that shows that a, a holistic, uh, comprehensive lifestyle intervention can actually reverse coronary artery disease, which is essentially uh, a disease of blockages of, of the blood vessels of the heart. So 
uh, a a clinical trial that showed that that looked at people with coronary artery disease uh, and and assign them to receive the standard of care versus uh, uh, a care where they uh, underwent a essentially a whole food plant-based diet, uh, meditation, yoga, uh, stress reduction, uh, moderate aerobic exercise, that group of people who received the holistic intervention actually did better uh, and had the blockage, some of the blockages in their blood vessels reversed. Hmm. And that also, uh, that type of holistic invention for heart disease also has been shown to uh, decrease hospitalizations as well as decrease the overall cost. Interesting. Well, yeah. And all of a sudden, it seems like it, but it, this is what's, I guess, a weird question. Um, so is is because when you sit there and say, okay, I need to work on diet, med- meditation, exercise, stress reduction, and yoga, or I can just take this pill. Um, boy, yeah. I, it seems like most Americans would say, I'll just take the pill. I'll take the pill. <laughs> and, and and in the end, so some of this might simply be because, you know, we're going to go to what's easiest, um, even if it's not in the long run best for our health. We we do we just tend to take the the easier way out. And is that why the medical world is taking kind of the less effective approach? Yeah, yeah I think that's all a sort of a side effect of the the way healthcare is currently structured. Now, with the fifteen minute office visits, there's it's there's that much less time to counsel patients on these lifestyle changes. It, it's much. It takes much less time to prescribe medications than to go through all those uh, counseling. Hmm. Uh, but certainly, it's much needed, um, and uh, in the long run, that we're doing a disservice for patients and uh, the public when we uh, don't, as doctors and healthcare providers, don't engage patients in a more uh, comprehensive conversation about what it means to be healthy. Yeah. And you know what? I've seen it myself, Dr. Wang. I really have just with this little gallbladder thing. It It's so much more complicated than gallbladder, right? And it's so much more complicated than, than even – and not complicated but more holistic. And so I appreciate your insight, your willingness to uh, be with us again. Dr. George Wang who is a geriatrician and integrative medicine physician, also uh, wrote this article for theconversation.com, Why There's More to Fixing Healthcare Than the Healthcare Laws. We're here, folks. We do the show to help us all uh, get the ideas we need to live longer, healthier lives. You know, it's not it's not easy, but it is, uh, it's important, I think, to all of us to know what would work for us. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, continuing this discussion and doing a little Coach's Corner, how we create a healthier life. That's up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Boy, you too stupid to do what your coach tells you. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. Welcome back. You know, could we ever expect our healthcare system to care more about our health than we do? You know, in the end, how much, if you could take a pill 
to lower your cholesterol or and your and, and eliminate some of your heart disease or if you had to you know exercise meditate uh, do some yoga um and, and all of these other things that demand so much of you would you do it in order to create better health for yourself well according to a nationwide survey conducted earlier this year by Harris Poll on behalf of career builder it says that 56% of us employees think that they are overweight that sentiment of uh, 3420 full-time workers um, in the study, half of those felt like they were overweight. According to the findings, two in five workers believe they have put on pounds in their current job. On par with last year, 25% said they gained more than 10 pounds in the last year. 10% gained more than 20 pounds. Why the weight gain? It's attributed to sitting at the desk. 51% of the people blamed sitting at the desk all day. Too tired from work to exercise, 45%. Eating because of stress, 38%. Eating out regularly, 24%. No time to exercise was 38%. Workplace (laughs) celebrations, happy birthday. (laughs) 18% are gaining weight because of that. How about the office candy jar? 16% of people say that uh, that is what's helping, that's causing them to gain weight. Happy hour to, you know, celebrate getting through the day, 4%. So in the end, we're getting we're getting heavier and heavier, and many are blaming our workplace for that, even though many work uh, organizations are have a culture where they're trying to create a wellness culture. In fact, in some uh, people, in some programs, you can actually earn about $532 a year just for being involved. For example, some uh, wellness programs, so look into them at your, in your organization, will pay you $164 for health biometric screenings. Or they'll pay you $132 for quitting, uh, for smoking, stopping your smoking. $111 if you enter into a weight management program in some of these uh, wellness programs. So just know there's resources for you. There's There's places you can go. Or you can just you know, continue to struggle. We had a yogurt parfait bar uh, offered by our wellness program to draw everyone in. Everyone will come for some parfait, right? And uh, when they come, then you can learn more about the wellness program. So look into your organization. Or, by the way, if you, if you, you know, don't have a company to go to, look into what your cities are doing. And uh, even the hospital program that you belong to, if you have insurance, you probably yourself have other wellness programs you could be taking advantage of. But there are resources there for everybody. Again, the goal is to become as healthy as we can. And let's do it together, for heaven's sakes. Uh, let's even – let's not just rely on our senators and legislators to bring the health to us. Let's start figuring out how we can take care of ourselves. It's hour number one of the program. Here to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Jeff. 
hanging out today, doing what we can to bring you the, the latest and greatest in research ideas. Today we'll be talking about why, uh, really, I mean, Uber, you've heard about Uber and some of the uh, problems that they need to they needed to do to fix their culture. Fox News has had a little culture shift as well. A lot of companies are struggling with uh, just some things that they may not be doing very well. Today we'll be talking about how you fix a toxic culture like Uber's, and it, it probably requires more than just firing or you know moving the CEO. You need to get the self-driving or flying cars. Well, yeah, that would be a different culture issue. This is more like hmm. why are they so maybe sexist at Uber? They had a little problem with their leadership and seeing women as equal. Didn't they have an Uber pro- – maybe it wasn't Uber, but they had a Uber. program where – uh, you could only have – there were, were female drivers for female passengers. Oh, like Uber security. Yeah, maybe. I, I did not know about you that. That actually that? would make sense though. One of the companies – I don't know if it was Uber, but it was one of those companies did come up with that because there were some uh, – Yeah, you want to be safe. There were some situations, very isolated, where a driver you know, assaulted yeah. somebody and they wanted to give people some peace of mind. And so they offered this mm-hmm. other service and it would be – you could choose who you want Which to gender, yeah, pick say, you up. yeah. No. You know, it's it's. Think about it. It's a brand new concept, relatively, and now all of a sudden anybody can come pick you up. Um, and and this is one of the problems you may have with a lot of these startups is they then take off, and all of a sudden you started with a startup leadership team, but you need to have an advanced, highly skilled C you know, C-suite level leadership skills, and they don't necessarily have that. So, no. and then that, then the culture is created and you have a lot of people turning. I mean, there's been weird stories all about you, Uber all over the country, but th- that's not Uber, but, but you, it does reflect some of its leadership. But like you said, it's not just Uber. This is, it's all across the business Think landscape. about United Airlines that we've talked about a lot recently. Think about Wells Fargo. Think about Volkswagen. Think about, I mean, there's a lot of companies that have cultural issues that need to be dealt with. So today we're going to be talking with an expert on how to fix a toxic culture. Also, by the way, holy cow, when animals attack. Which what? one? So would you rather have – I'm just going to give you four animals. You tell me the one you'd most rather interact with. Nice. Bees. I guess I don't know those are animals. Uh, they are. Lo- uh, mountain lions. Cobras. Or bears. I'll take the bees. Oof. How about 35,000 bees? Yeah. Does, does that change anything? No, I'll take the bees. You'll take the bees. You'll take the bees over a mountain lion? Yeah. How about over cobras? Absolutely. But the cobras, let's just say, are in a box. So is, maybe you need to worry about them. Maybe you don't. Is the mm. box secured with duct tape, packing tape, or scotch tape? I'm not going to say if it's secured at all. It's how a about folded post-it note. Uh, how about, <laughs> how about you're, what, you're in bed and a mountain lion jumps on your bed while you're in it? Mm. Mountain lion, by the way, also known as a cougar here in the West. Interesting. Yeah. So if a, cougar, if a cougar just runs in, jumps on your bed, you got to get out of there. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm not sure which one I would pick. I know. That's I what think we'll, each of them have their own danger. We've got a story around each one of them today. Plus also a Florida man that just drives into a Lowe's and starts cutting lot lumber. 
you know? Wow. Just all of a sudden, hey, I'm just going to start cutting some lumber. So Why not? Right. Why not? Why not? All of those stories you didn't even know you needed to know about, but now you're going to know about them. Did you know? Did you know? Lions, tigers, bears. Oh, my. And bees. Cobras. And cobras. Well, that was a different day, but still. No tiger. Just lions, bears, cobras, and bees. Oh, my. Hmm. Oh, got a great show. We'll get to all of that fun and uh, and so much more, actually. So much more that we even we don't know about. Can we yet. promise more? We can promise even more. Wow. And for less. More for less. <laughs> and it will be less filling but more fulfilling. Great tasting. Are you sure I'm it's not, not sure you sure here. it's not less for more? I don't even less know. Less content, more time. Yeah. We will take all the time we can and give you as little of content as we have to. Wow. That's a promise. <laughs> that's, that's one that won't make much money, though. <laughs> uh, but first, of course, to the headlines, let's have Terry enlighten us about what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry? A couple of U.S. Navy stories to start out with. The crew of the USS Fitzgerald was likely at fault in the warship's collision with a Philippine cargo ship in June. Really? Remember that story? Yeah, what happened? Uh, it had not been paying attention to their surroundings, according to initial findings in an investigation, the U.S. defense official told uh, Reuters on Friday. So, if you remember the story, you have a USS Fitzgerald coming out of the Sea of Japan, I believe. Yeah. There's a Philippine-flagged uh Crater, uh, uh, cargo ship, cargo ship yeah. coming coming kind of north, and uh, the, they collided. Yeah, and and you're like, wait a second, both of these have highly advanced radar and autopilot. They were wondering if maybe the, uh, the cargo ship was on autopilot, and it was in the middle of the night. But the, so, the cargo ship went all erratic, right? Yeah, the cargo ship made a but weird. The spin Americans move. weren't looking, weren't paying attention. Well, the Americans have a have a, a night shift, basically, right? Yeah. You have a whole crew up someone was running the ship, and no one looked over to see something the size of the. Well, what do you do? I guess you would just get everyone awake and have them brace for a you, cargo ship. You turn the boat. The things the size but, of. But a, they don't turn a, very fast. Do but they? It's the size of a skyscraper. You could turn a battleship faster. You can, I'm talking about the, the actual oh. USS Fitzgerald, right? Oh yeah, yeah. They have lookouts. They have a. Yeah. a they have. Yeah. I mean, the captain may be asleep, but someone's on the bridge, right? But you know what they say when the captain's asleep, which is what probably happened. They start their poker game. Yeah. <laughs> Someone wasn't doing their job, and people oh, died. Yeah, like six people died, didn't? They? I mean, that's right. sad, tragic. So, so they're they're saying their findings. Uh, just their their initial, by the way, U.S. multiple U.S. and Japanese investigations underway to see how this collision happened. Uh, the much larger ACX Crystal container ship. It was in clear weather uh. in the Tokyo Bay. It was early hours, but there's no reason for anyone to have right. any issue. And you have a battleship that has the most technologically advanced systems. But when you you know, there's that moment where you know they were just probably turning the the cargo ship around, and then you hit. You you hit an American battleship. Right. I mean, it couldn't have worse luck. No, not like, at all. You could have hit anything else but an American battleship. So it says the official said that in addition to crew members not paying attention to their surroundings, they did not take action until it was too late. And it's the worst oh. naval disaster since the USS Cole was bombed in Yemen really? in 2000 when hmm. it comes to death of sailors. So, uh, Other news, the U.S. Navy reconnaissance plane operating in international airspace during a routine mission over the East China Sea was intercepted by two Chinese fighter jets on Sunday. One of the fighter jets flew underneath the U.S. aircraft at a high rate of speed, slowed, and then pulled up really quick, forcing the U.S. plane to take evasive action to prevent the possibility of collision. So again, more 
near air misses Boy. with other governments. And they said this, you have these sort of intercepts that happen, but the Pentagon is saying this one was especially unsafe. Like, just because they flew too close? Yeah. I mean, we got, we're running up against Russia, we're running up against China, and everyone sends everyone up to check each other. It makes you wonder, really, maybe some of these other pilots aren't as well-trained as maybe the Americans are. Or maybe they are. That's why they can pull these moves. And they're, they're deemed unsafe, but they're safe enough. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Mm. Uh, Roomba. You know what Roomba oh, yeah, is? Yeah. The, the automated robotic yeah, my favorite, sweeper? my favorite robot sweeper. They're a popular brand of robotic vacuum, can make maps of homes as it cleans, and Roomba's parent company, iRobot, is reportedly considering a sale to tech giants like Amazon, Apple, or Alphabet, which runs Google. Uh, they want to send them the maps of these homes. Oh. Right? So Roomba, no, they're no, cruising no, around no, people's no. houses vacuuming, and they make a map of the home, so that's how it knows where your couch is and where the end table is and all that. Well, that information, iRobot, the parent company, gets that, and they want to sell that information. No. Yeah. <gasps> No. It says the data would be used in smart home technology, but could also raise privacy concerns yeah. for Roomba owners who don't want their data sold. iRobot CEO told Reuters that it would not sell customers' data without their consent. Okay. But now, now, now you're like, wait, I thought it was just vacuuming my house, and it has a whole map of my house, and now it's being streamed and somewhere. What and- happens when it sends data that you never vacuum your house, you dirty pig? There you go. This is where their couch is. Yeah. This is where the husband passes out. This is where he leaves his socks every night. Mm. Yeah. I don't like that idea. Yeah. I, I Which mean, is why it's been brought up, because it's a privacy concern. Well, by the way, whoever thought their vacuum would turn on them like that? Absolutely. What a joke. Ooh. Well, a, joke. a long time ago, we had the story about the Roomba that turned on its owners after it vacuumed up something. Some doggy doo-doo. Yes. Yeah, it was all over and the house. That, <laughs> that's why I love a Roomba. I mean, there's no better story than a Roomba story. And as you ask people that own Roombas, they've had experiences that way because something, food, yeah. something gets left on the ground and it just runs right over the top of Roomba it. Roomba goes awry. Finally. Yes. This weekend. What? It was Comic-Con. In San Diego. Exactly. All kinds of trailers, all kinds of just... A lot of weird people. Really cool. The, the thing that ticks me off is they keep showing trailers but they don't release them to the public and then people in attendance who see the trailer yeah. give you the uh, 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 they, they write a whole article describing what was in the trailer but there's no there's video no trailer, of the yeah. trailer so so they're, they're those are pre-release trailers well they're 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 a sneak peek sneak peek trailers and you have to go to Comic-Con in San Diego or Disney's conference D23 that they had last week before Comic-Con to see any of these trailers Wow. The scene of these released footage. Now, somebody did take their cell phone and did sort of a pirated copy, and I watched that. It's horrible, but very entertaining. It's a horrible quality video, but I watched it. This is something that – this seems like a first world problem. Really, really – probably the essence of a first world problem is what I'm talking about. A first world problem for, you know, nerds. They did release the new Thor Ragnarok trailer, which was pretty awesome. Yeah, I'd have to say that sounds fantastic. It's kind of a it's going to be a buddy movie. It's going to be like planes, trains, and automobiles, but oh. with Thor and Hulk, or like Rush Hour. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Yeah, it's it's a buddy it's a buddy adventure as they try to save the universe. Basically, what was that, Jeff? That you just said that was from Rush Hour. Yeah, no, 
didn't even I didn't hear so it. this brings up another thought what if we run out of source material for comic book movies wouldn't that be great it would be wouldn't horrible. that be a blessing I mean, I just saw Spider-Man. I'm like, ah, we're going to run out of good ideas. For, I mean, but, but I just, haven't we already run out of good ideas? No, not at all. Rest assured, <laughs> between Marvel and DC, there are some 17,000 characters to choose from. Oh, Enough for them to keep battling it out for box office dominance for the next 3,400 years. So hmm. we're good. Yeah. There's no threat that we're going to actually lose the, the ability to continue to make comic book movies. <sighs> Darn it. I'm really happy about that news. Yeah. It helped me rest easier through the weekend. I mean, it made your headlines. You know, if you go on, it's, it's either Yahoo or IMDb, they did rank the top seven trailers from Comic-Con. So you can watch some of them. Right. But why would you? And I did the see the, the Stranger Things uh, two. season two trailer. But why are it those looks amazing. Comic-Con? Because it's sci-fi, it's entertainment. See, I think Comic-Con's getting bigger than... It is. It just takes everything in now. Just let it go and enjoy the brilliance of a weekend of just every couple hours they release something new. I watched Wonder Woman this weekend. And? Um, It was enjoyable. Mm -hmm. It was very long. It seemed very long to me. Really? And I think it's because the story was so in-depth. I mean, you got a lot of her story, so you can now see that they could build a whole franchise on Wonder Woman. Wait, so you could have seen Dunkirk, mm-hmm. and you saw Wonder Woman instead? Yeah. He'll see Dunkirk in like six months. Yeah. You you constantly criticize these superhero movies, Yeah. and instead of seeing a true-to-life drama, you yeah. saw a an untrue-to-life superhero movie. What do you movie. mean, untrue-to-life? It was in World War One. Yeah. I there's something about her ability to stop bullets yeah. and the truth lasso, which played a really, really s- strong part, I think, in mm. the movie. It has key. nothing to do key. with the fact that she is uh, portrayed by a supermodel. Oh, oh, was she a supermodel? Well, she's a model slash actress. Did not even notice that. Yeah. Just too caught okay. up in the acting. All right. Amazing. But I liked it because it showed in-depth storyline about a superhero. There you go. Which I kind of – I feel like I need because it's hard. I don't even know the whole Thor thing. So you bring that up and it seems like a Thor See, in my side. And over the weekend, there was a question. <laughs> Thor Thor has this hammer. Anyway. Right? We, we so gotta... the question is can Thor fly or is the hammer pulling him through the air? And then, and then the question, does it matter? These are important things that we I must think about. I think that's the more important question. <laughs> well, and speaking speaking of flying, like Thor. With his hammer, Mjolnir. This is uh, actually sorry. somewhat of a decent segue. Yeah. Compared, decent. you know. Yeah, compared to the other ones. Yeah. Um, snakes back on a plane. You've seen the movie. No, I've heard about the movie. We've had snakes in everything lately. Yes. Snakes are getting everywhere. Well, apparently the U.S. Custom and Border Protection Officer seized five live king cobras during an inspection at John F. Kennedy International Mail Facility. Five live king cobras. The x-ray of a package from Hong Kong showed juvenile snakes. By the way, nothing worse than those juvies, you know, the juvie snakes slithering around inside the box. Officers then contacted the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, and together they opened the package and found the live king cobra snakes inside. Speaking of trailers released at Comic-Con, this is another one that was released at Comic-Con. The king cobras found in 
Texas? Snakes in JFK Airport. Really? Yeah. Does does the trailer say anything about the geckos? They found three geckos in the package as well. No. If anything, the snakes ate the geckos. Ah, that's tragic. So so as a just a little preview, because Terry and Jeff love these trailers so much. This was the number one trailer from Comic Con. Snakes at the JFK International Mail Facility. When Samuel L. Jackson fought snakes in the films Snakes in a Car, Snakes in a Bed, and Snakes in a Toilet, it was personal. But this time, it's postal. At JFK International Airport, packages marked special delivery containing venomous snakes are showing up at the mail facility. And there's only one man who knows how to handle them with care. I have had it with these mega-sized snakes disrupting my Monday through Friday delivery route. It's time for me to return you to your sender. Now you're certified dead. Snakes in an international airport mail facility. He's sending them on a one-way trip. A toxic workplace is not a very fun place to uh, to have to go to every day. While some people enjoy going to work, others, you know, may dread it, you know, because they feel like the actual culture of their workplace may be killing them little by little. Well, the rideshare service Uber's toxic workplace culture prompted the board of directors to make a change in their CEO. However, is a change of a CEO enough to change a toxic culture? Here with us today is Katina Sawyer, Dr. Katina Sawyer, a professor of psychology at Villanova University. And uh, she's here to talk to an article that she has written about the subject. Katina, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This uh, we, we hear stories of Uber. We hear Fox News in the news because of um, uh, their culture about and how they treat women in their culture. Uh, Sterling Jewelers, Volkswagen, Wells Fargo are having uh, other types of issues. Um, talk about is there a rise of these kind of toxic cultures or are we just hearing more about them today? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's a really interesting question, and I don't have any sort of data to support that these things are happening more frequently than they used to. I think there is a lot of research that exists that shows that these kind of cultures have, have been around for quite a long time. Um, and I think that really what's happening now is that with the rise of social media and the ability for people to document things in real time, share documents that are passed around through organizations more widely to people outside the organization, um, websites like Glassdoor that allow people people to report on the corporate culture that they are experiencing within their workplace. Um, All of this information is much more accessible to us now, and it travels really quickly. So I think part of the issue is, you know, and it's it's good, right, in, in, in many ways, that people have a lot more access to 
um, the information around corporate culture. And I also think people are starting to value corporate culture more than they used to. I think people are expecting um, jobs to provide good places to work that are going to be healthy places, both uh, mentally and physically healthy places for them to be in a way that may not have been the case years ago. Mm. And I mean, really, we've got to do whatever we can, it seems like, to keep our employees engaged. Uh, because we've heard so many numbers and statistics about how disengaged so many of us are. When when it comes to, and I guess a lot of that is a cultural issue, huh? It's 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 the it's the pressure and it's the systems and the structures that are created by our organizational leaders. Absolutely, yeah. Employee engagement is a huge issue, and I think that part of the reason why it's such an issue is because. Right now, what companies are doing is they're sort of measuring engagement, which is great, right? You get a pulse on where things stand, but it still remains sort of a black box of what to do if you find out that your engagement is low. And so I think part of what companies are really looking for and what employees are looking for them to solve is, okay, we're telling you that things are not working the way that we'd like them to. What are you going to do about it? Um, How can I become um, more engaged with my job? How can I become more engaged with the corporate culture? And the good news for companies is that if they can crack that nut, if they can solve that problem, it does have a really positive impact on the bottom line, on employee productivity, on employee job attitudes, on referrals, mm. ability to recruit, all of these things that companies, you know, keep leaders of companies up at night about how to stay ahead of their competitors. Engagement is directly linked to those things. So if you can solve the problem of engagement, which really corporate culture is a huge driver of that. Most people like their actual job, the tasks that they do in their actual job, but it's who's around them and how they feel while they're doing those tasks that ends up keeping them from being engaged. Oh, interesting. So so some of the problems that we hear about, Uber, for example, w- had a lot of uh, issues with, I, I guess, harassment, sexual mm-hmm. harassment, uh, Fox News as well. Uh, so harassment would be some of it. But other organizations, um, Wells Fargo had a pressure of kind of, you know, going against your ethics um, was the culture. What other toxic cultures do we see? Yeah, I think that there are a wide variety of toxic cultures. I mean, there are toxic cultures that surround bullying um, and abusive supervision, which uh, myself and my colleague, uh, Christian Thorogood, who's also here at Villanova, we've done some work on that um, in that area, um, looking at cultures that sort of support supervisors acting in bullying ways or abusive ways towards mm. uh, their the people that they lead. Um, and that can encompass harassment. Um, it doesn't have to be sexual harassment. It could be other kinds of harassment as well. Um, and this is more likely to happen in companies where there are really big power differentials between people in charge and people who are not in charge, and when there's not a lot of checks and balances on leaders. So, um, yeah, it all kind of stems from um, the, the authority that people are given to sort of behave in the ways that they want to behave and the lack of accountability for or, or listening to followers when they report those sorts of things. So, yeah, it's around abusive supervision, bullying, harassment, and then also you had mentioned um, cultures that uh, you know put the bottom line first uh, in terms of making people make decisions that might look good in the short term for business, but in the long term, when those unethical decisions are uncovered, it can be really catastrophic. So um, short-term vision often drives a lot of these kinds of cultures because people aren't thinking about what are going to be the consequences in the long term when somebody figures out that this is what's going on. Mm. And it seems like, and I don't know if Uber fits this mold, but some of these young startup companies, and you you see it. I'm surprised we haven't seen more of it in Facebook, Twitter, um, uh, even I guess Amazon. I mean, these were such tech giants that took and, and grabbed so so quickly that um, it, it almost seems like sometimes your leaders, your founders, 
could be, you know, shot to the top of a large organization worth billions when they may not be the best leader for an organization. They just mm-hmm. they may have been an awesome innovator, an awesome entrepreneur, but maybe the best entrepreneur doesn't make a great leader. Absolutely. And and I, I couldn't agree more. I think that one of the things that's really unfortunate that happens to leaders is that, you know, sometimes people don't don't choose to be a leader in that kind of way or they're not prepared to be a leader in that kind of way, but they end up in that situation. They start something that ends up taking off and all of a sudden they're in charge of this big company. And, you know, a few months ago, they didn't really see themselves as being in that position and all of a sudden that's their trajectory. Yeah. And I think that, you know, ultimately there aren't a lot of um, leadership skills trainings that exist within society and colleges or in other places where people garner those skills. So a lot of the time people are, you know, thinking about doing these kinds of things, starting companies, innovating, which is awesome. But then they don't have the leadership skills training along the way to make them effective when they get to the top. Now, some people are really good and intuitive about picking up on those sorts of things, figuring out how to make uh, companies really open and um, and friendly towards employees. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg uh, was very open and transparent from the beginning of starting Facebook that he was going to listen to his employees mm. and take their feedback very seriously. And I think that that two-way communication shows some um, natural uh, natural tendency towards empathy and listening um, as opposed to folks that feel like they have to have all the answers. And I think that um, because a lot of these people are people who are very talented um, and they're used to in their lives being told that they're right uh, that they're really smart, that they're really good at things. The idea of not being good at something can be so scary that oftentimes leaders or people who are you know, catapulted into leadership positions feel uncomfortable asking for help. And I think that when they become overwhelmed and they're not doing well and they're seeing the signs of the times around them, the culture of the organization is bad, maybe I've made some bad decisions or bad choices, um, they're not willing to concede to that. And so things continue to devolve until they become public matters. Mm. Uh, again, we're speaking with Dr. Katina Sawyer from Villanova University. She's an assistant professor of psychology there talking about um, toxic cultures. And Katina, when you – in your article, you talk about the fact that you know, they go in with Uber. Um, big investors say we need to change the CEO out. It's not working. So they, they kind of – they do a, a CEO change. But uh, is that enough to move a CEO out? Is that all you need in order to create the culture change? Yeah, and so I think, you know, ultimately, um, you know, ousting a CEO or ousting senior leadership sends a positive message, right, that there are some consequences or accountability um, that's, that's necessary in order to lead the organization. And so it's a start. But what ends up happening within these situations is that there are a lot of people who selected into a bad culture and who were selected uh, by others into that bad culture. So um, you oftentimes have people who fit well with that culture, so they actually liked the culture that they were Mm. in. Um, Or you have people who, you know, were really interested in that culture because they saw it as a way for them to um, personally gain if they, you know, kind of uh, aligned themselves with the leaders of the organization. So there are some people within the organization that are, you know, actively or we're actively invested in that culture. And those sorts of individuals also need to be, um, you know, rooted out or, or retrained at the very least um, on a new culture. And, and um, there are other people who are just going to be confused or lost or not understand what the direction is. So in these kinds of instances, 
yes, it does send a positive signal to get rid of senior leaders who are perpetrating a bad climate and a bad culture. But ultimately, the organization is then left with a lot of question marks. You know, what is the new culture? What's replacing it? What were the bad behaviors? What behaviors should we do instead? Um, all of these kinds of questions arise when people find themselves in an organization that begins to look and feel a little bit different than the one that they had entered into. And so the question becomes, well, we know what we were wasn't working, but who are we now? And we need to, as leaders, leaders need to provide that structure. New leaders need to provide that structure for people if they want to see the change occur. Mm. In fact, you saw that. You saw many leaders at Uber uh, that would bail out. They they got out because the uh, I don't know if the culture was bad, but their ability to get the results they wanted. I mean, I guess you've got to be a pretty strong person to to be willing to just walk away from these top tier jobs. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that the good news is that most people in organizations, leaders included, um, you know, we, we often think that um, we are who we are across a variety of different situations. And most of us go along with a context, right? We perform differently when we're in a particular context. So if a, if a context supports bad behavior, people will go along with that bad behavior. But there is a breaking point to that, that people will, and, and particularly people with uh, high self-esteem, high levels of confidence, will tend to look at that and say, okay, this has gone too far. I've had enough. And those are the kinds of people that will leave those kinds of cultures and walk away from them. Um, so the good news is that there is a population of people that won't stand for it, but then it still leaves the organization without those leaders, right? The people that walk away are sometimes the people that you would have needed the most to write yeah. the ship. Um, so how do, you, how do you bring those people in or that type of person back in um, after you've had a, a big blow up like this? Yeah, and how do you, how do you become that kind of person yeah. So that so that you don't yeah the, you can become leader in integrity instead of having to just you know take follow the same lead of of somebody that's more toxic. We're speaking with Dr. Katina Sawyer. We'll take a, a little break here, and up next we're going to continue this discussion about toxic cultures, but what we can do and and what others leaders can do to change the toxic culture. Uh, more importantly, to actually create a healthy culture, uh, a culture that people want to be a part of and uh, the, the kind that you would be proud of. That's all up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead healthier lives and a stronger workplace environment. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Uh, joining us on the phone is Dr. Katina Sawyer. She is a, uh, an assistant professor of psychology in the graduate program in human resources development at Villanova University. And uh, her research focuses primarily on diversity in the workplace and the impact of negative workplace behaviors on organizational outcomes. Katina, again, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I mean, really, it's uh, you would think sexual harassment would would be because half of your organization uh generally i guess would be statistically would be females would you would think that there would be even more pushback more blowback even earlier so what is it that allows the the institution and the culture to the, especially a sexist kind of uh, uh culture to last as long as it did for example in uber's in Uber's example. 
Absolutely, yeah. So I think a lot of this has to do with access to power and access to resources within organizations. And the more access to power and the more access to resources leaders have, the more they can hold that over their employees' heads. And so a lot of times what we end up seeing in situations of harassment is that, you know, women within the organization may sense already because of the culture that surrounds them, that it might be a little bit more difficult for them to get ahead and be taken seriously as a female within the organization. Mm -hmm. So they kind of put their heads down and try to work as hard as they can to get themselves to the top based on their task performance, right? Which is what, uh, you know, is supposed to happen at work. Um, Objective task performance is supposed to predict, um, you know, your success. And so it may be the case that, and what we often see is that leaders often use harassment as a way to keep these people that they see as threats or if it's just a sexist climate um, that they see as more as objects than as employees. Um, And they use this form of sexism to sort of keep women in their place within organizations. And unfortunately, it actually is a tactic that works fairly well because it's very demoralizing um, to, you know, be in a workplace where you're treated that way. But it can also be really difficult to come up against a leader who has a lot of power and a lot of access to resources and organizations and feel confident that you're actually going to prevail um, in fighting that person on this on this case of harassment, right? So um, it often takes a long time and the culture has to get really bad before someone is willing to speak up because they have to feel like the evidence is really not uh, able to be disputed, that it wouldn't be able to be turned back on them and the person wouldn't be able to use their power or their authority to make it look like that person was fabricating the information, etc. So sometimes mm. these things go on for a really long time before someone speaks up and as was the case with Uber and also with Fox News, you see one person, and, and oftentimes it's helpful if that person themselves holds some clout. So, uh, for example, at uh, Fox News with Greta Van Susteren, right, um, a person who is well-respected within the organization, who's a powerful figure that comes forward, and then you see this you know, sort of deluge of other people coming forward and speaking up. Um, And a lot of times people think that that deluge happens um, because people are trying to cash in, right? Like, oh, I see someone else doing this, and so I'm going to go after people. Really, the the likely scenario and the data shows the likely scenario is that that person has actually opened the door for people to speak about something that they've been wanting to speak about for a long time. So, um, unfortunately, the people that come after the first person that reports are often seen very negatively as if they're after uh, money or after power. Mm. Um, and, and really what, what is most likely the case is that these have been people who have been sitting on this for a long time and now feel empowered to speak up about what's been happening to them. Boy, and gives them a voice. It, it does show you that you really only need one or two people maybe in power to 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 be willing to say something. But I guess it's so risky, too, because yeah. the entire system is against you. Yeah, it's difficult. And I think a lot of times, uh, particularly, you know, my my background is in psychology, but I also have a background in women's studies. And I know that sometimes, uh, you know, women feel like when they've made it to the top of the organization, you know, they want to be able to stay there because it looks good for other women to see that people can make it to the top. So once they're there, they feel uncomfortable often rocking the boat. So Mm. they're not sure the extent to which they should, you know, be a woman who ha- a professional who happens to be a woman or a professional woman, right? Right. Um, where they're they're um, using their position to argue for gender equity as opposed to um, using their presence as a as a physical reminder of the possibility of gender equity. And I think that those two things can sometimes um, be conflicting for people to figure out whether or not they want to advocate or whether they want to just be present. And sometimes those two things might not go together. You might not be allowed to be present anymore if you advocate. 
Interesting. And and yet it's it's so amazing to me because there's also there's a moral there's a moral code here that everybody could stand up for like just morally this is reprehensible but there's also a business code like yes. this is just bad business and it fox shows it because of how many people left how much money it cost them how it impacted ratings um after the turn it's but even that it's interesting even the business argument may not matter if everyone's you know entrenched in fear yeah, and I think also, you know, a lot of times the business the business case is extremely important and as you mentioned, you know, in these kinds of environments, people have lower job attitudes, they have lower job commitment, they have higher intentions to turn over, all of these kinds of things that really affect the bottom line negatively. But many instances, the leaders that are in these positions of power don't view their actions as being part of that story, oh, right? Yeah. And they don't they also um may not be thinking about it from the business case because perspective taking is really a part of of what harassment lacks, right? When people are harassing other people on a regular basis, they usually tend not to be very good at perspective taking. And so um, if you think about, well, how is my behavior impacting this person's day, this person's performance? Well, that's perspective taking. So oftentimes they're not thinking about it that way. So they're not making the link between their behaviors and productivity or attitudes, et cetera. So um, sometimes it really takes somebody to come into the organization and spell that out for people that this environment is monetarily damaging for you. And sometimes, even though that's not the best way to make the argument for why you shouldn't harass other people, sometimes that's really the wake-up call for companies is this is hitting me in the pocket. What can I do to fix Interesting. it? Interesting. Well, and um, the, it's hard to take be good at taking perspective of others when everyone's afraid to offer you truthful feedback. Like yeah. I mean, you look at Roger Ailes, who was at the center of the Fox News um, issue and and all of the I guess toxic culture there, and especially anti women toxic culture. But you could tell that as the leader and the guru and the guy that made Fox News. Very few people probably dared to give him feedback, but it also yeah. was interesting how at the end of his life when his, he was weakening, I guess, in power anyway, it's like everybody finally were, – they were able to turn it. But yeah. how, do we, how do we get that earlier? How do you get it, especially to the innovator, to the real leader that created like a Fox News or created Uber? How do you – is there any way to really get the message more quickly into their head um, so that we, you don't have to take 20 years, 30 years to do this. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things that can be really helpful is making sure that leaders understand that they don't have to have the answer all the time, that being a leader doesn't mean always being right. Being a leader means being able to listen and make decisions and to work with others to create a collaborative environment that's going to support whatever the product or service is. So you're a facilitator as a leader. You're not a dictator as a leader, right? Um, and I think that that's important for people to recognize that if they don't have the answer, that information gathering process and collaborative process process of coming up with solutions, that's okay. And sort of breaking down those barriers between I'm in charge and you you work for me helps to create more transparency so that when these situations crop up, people feel comfortable going to the leader, as you just mentioned, you know, that people sort of feel like they would like to tell the person or other people around that person sees that person behaving negatively, but they don't feel like they can say anything about it. That's exactly what you don't want. You want people to feel like I can come to the leader, I can have an honest conversation with the leader, and the leader can do the same thing with me too, right? Um, if, I, if I am having an issue with performance or attitude or whatever, that we can have open dialogue about it. And instead of 
sitting and having all these unspoken issues that are going on within the group that we get them out on the table, we fix them, and we move forward for continuous improvement. So I think it's really about changing the way that we think about leadership, changing the way that we think about how how leaders could uh, and should interact with the people that follow them, um, and making the environment really one of learning and collaboration as opposed to sort of rule and order. Yeah. It also seems like the board, these were all large, large organizations, so it seems like the board has a different role to play. I mean, it was the board that pushed Uber's leader out, and it seems like it might have been the board that that has guided other groups like Facebook and um, maybe Amazon. I mean, having outsiders that are actually actively involved, not just sitting there collecting a check, but are mm-hmm. actively involved in the culture of the organization and, and hearing what's going on um, might be valuable as well. Absolutely. I think that outsider opinions are really useful. And we see a lot of times uh, in psychology, we call the effect groupthink. And I'm sure you and and other folks have heard of that. Um, And one of the biggest ways to get yourself out of groupthink is to get outside perspectives and to take those perspectives seriously. So oftentimes, uh, especially in my consulting work or in other areas, I see people bring folks in to tell them what they want to hear. And that's not that's not useful, right? You want someone to come in and tell you the truth and then figure out what to do with that. So again, I think it really goes back to this transparency and openness and communication. And if we could get to young leaders early and tell them that, you know, being a leader is about creating a place where you want to work, where other people want to work, and you can work together to make that happen. And it's about facilitating that environment. I think that that could be really useful in sort of cutting down, um, you know, what happens when people get shot to the top and all of a sudden feel like I'm in charge. I have to act like I'm in charge. I can't ask for help. And I don't want anyone. And, and people pick up on that. And then they say, well, he doesn't want any help or she doesn't want any help, right? Um, And so I'm not going to try to tell them when things are going wrong and things go on for too long um, until we see these kinds of problems. Give us uh, the one thing I always ask, the one thing that um, we should all be doing in our organizations, I guess, whether we're the leader or, um, you know, trying to make our way up the plat up the up the ladder is are there certain things we can do just to make sure that we are taking the place of other and um, and that we're getting feedback to the best that we can to our leaders. Sure. So I think, you know, one of the things that I am really, I really strongly believe, I mean, I think that there are definitely bad apples within organizations and in, in life and in society, right? There are people who actively enact negative work behaviors. And then there are people who are, are really um, – gifted and inspired and charismatic and able to sort of actively turn around cultures. And then there are a lot of people who are in between who sort of aren't sure what to do or how to act within these kinds of cultures. So if a good culture comes along, they'll stick to that. But if a bad culture comes along, they're not really sure um, or not really prepared to speak up or say something. And I think that empowering bystanders, empowering this group of people that actually makes up the largest group of people in organizations are the people that um, are sort of waiting to see what happens and trying to fit in and trying to go along with what they believe the company rewards and and values. Um, I think that empowering bystanders to speak up when they see something negative, when they feel like things aren't going the way that they should. You know, everybody has this gut feeling. Um, you know, things are not happening the way that they should be. This this environment's not going well. Um, empowering those bystanders to report, having reporting mechanisms that are open and transparent, taking action when those reports are made. All of those kinds of things are important. And and being an open ear and an open door as a manager 
employer or as just a fellow employee to start the dialogue with other employees that may be feeling the same way that you are can actually help to build momentum. You know, all of our movements in society have started by building momentum, small groups that start to grow over time because more and more people share a similar experience. And I think that in companies, being that person, being that open door and being that listening ear can help people to feel like the problem that they're experiencing may not be solo to them and can help gain some momentum finding other leaders that feel the same way that you do and sort of building a quorum so that the organization can really start to change around from the inside out. Yeah, beautiful. Dr. Katina Sawyer, thank you so much for your insight. Again, Katina is an assistant professor of psychology at Villanova University and uh, is the author of uh, the article, Fixing a Toxic Culture Like Ubers Requires More Than Just a New CEO. Great insights for all of us, really. And are you part of the culture? Uh, are, are you just part of a you know bystander, or do you step up and actually push back when uh, you need to push back? Interesting insight. Up next, we're going to continue the journey and also continue giving you some insight in, on some of our empty news stories. What to do when a mountain lion jumps in your bed? Hmm. I don't know. Do you, do you just hide under the covers? That's up next right here on Sirius XM, 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody. Boy, animals are on the loose, apparently. Um, There's something about this summer. A California woman had a rude awakening on the 4th of July when a mountain lion crashed through her apartment window and landed on top of her while she slept. Can you imagine this? You're just having that great dream, mm, that that lovely dream. And the next thing you know, you hear a crash. At first, I think she said she thought she was dreaming. It didn't seem real. Apartment manager Frances Munoz told local media, footage obtained by security cameras and shared with UPI showed that the puma, a young adult, had earlier been spooked while narrowly avoiding a truck and then ran into the door of a bowling alley off of Main Street, uh, in California. And through a turkey, as I understand it. And, and through, through a turkey? Yeah. Three strikes in a row? Oh, is that a turkey? Yeah. Day? Yeah. I didn't know that it was bowling. I just thought it just ran into the thing. Um, later that night, it then barged into the woman's apartment, perhaps thinking it was an entrance of a cave. Maybe. Oh, hey, there's a cave. So what do you do when a puma or a mountain lion, I guess, jumps and lands on top of you? Uh, panic? Do you play dead do you sit still just be still be still here kitty 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 good kitty good kitty luckily the woman wasn't injured she chose to just open the door to her apartment letting the bleeding and disoriented animal escape oh so it was injured yeah but uh seems worse to have a injured mountain lion it's understandable. I mean, bowling is kind of an all-contact sport. Yeah, it is. Nothing more, nothing more intense than that. Now, so that's that's one way to get it out. Just open the door. In Park City, Utah, a man shooed a bear from his home Wednesday morning. No one anticipated the next move. It happened around 11.30 when Bob Anderson was having a sandwich when he spotted the bear. He said, I'm about done with my sandwich, and I look up, and the bear is on the landing right there looking at me. Just looking at me. A bear. The bear tipped over a garbage can on his way out, and Anderson called police. 
Officials from the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources responded to the scene. The bear looks to be all, uh, about a year and a half old. It probably was just kicked out of its home by its mom. So ah, it's crazy. And we have some footage, I think, some audio of the bear and the woman. Walking, walking and rolling Out to my car I'm strolling But the big bear's blocking my car Not fun, I said big bear Hmm, stop it now Everyone told me just to go in reverse Said Big Bear's bound to move Nudge him in the coconut But he didn't But he didn't Have me going like Yeah 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 Nothing I could do but wait When this Big Bear blocked me When I tried to yell it seems That Big Bear was laughing And then Bear made his way to my refrigerator Stealing my ice cream I just wait, wait, wait and yawn Watching him jump on my bonbons Eat, 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 eat and stop Stop it now This is the Matt Townsend Show Your guide on the side Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter At Dr. Matt Show Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU This is the Matt Townsend Show Dr. Matt Townsend Now on BYU Radio BYU Radio Happy Wednesday morning to you, everybody. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day. And if not, let's uh, let's change that. Let's do a little about face on that uh, on that day. Today, by the way, is all or nothing day. Is this Millie Vanilli? Who is this? This, this is Millie, Millie Vanilli. Vanilli. Yeah. This brings back such memories. Oh, it's all or nothing day, folks. Whether it's applying for a job, trying an extreme sport, or just saying sorry to someone. Everyone has uh, something they would love to do if they weren't such a scaredy cat. Speaking of saying sorry, Millie Vanilli knows a thing or two about that. (laughs) In fact, uh, Millie Vanilli, I don't know, it's just... They were they were huge in my day for a year. Were you duped by them? I was duped. I was totally duped. I was on my LDS mission in Argentina, would walk down the street, and you'd hear Milli Vanilli everywhere. And I, I didn't know what was going on. And then by the time I got off my mission and was home, uh, they were found out to be a fraud. Lip-syncing problem. Milli Vanilli was the start of me questioning everything that I thought was true. Really? When it came this out was like they were lip-syncing, I, uh, I started questioning Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Well, why did why go to such an extreme? Because you don't have to it's throw all lies. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Come on. I don't know what that has to do with. I mean, I guess the <laughs> Millie Vanilli used to bathe a lot. Uh, by the way, and our kind boss Don Shaline gave me a Millie Vanilli vinyl. No, that's in my office. Oh yeah, really? A vinyl? Yeah. I don't know what to do with it. It's displayed prominently right behind you. Yeah. Does but it I, contain "Girl, You Know It's True"? It's their. It's one of their main songs. It might be "Girl, You Know It's True," or it's this one. Or it's "Blame It on the Rain." Or yeah, there's, they, had, they yeah. had three hits. Well, they didn't. 
But they're Whoever singer, actually, songwriter. Yeah. It, yeah. The interesting thing, it never came out who actually sang those songs. Yeah, that was sad is that guy could have a career. Right. He probably did. Actually, this guy. He's probably See, a ghost singing. singer on a bunch of other albums. I had the album on cassette, and when I found out there was you know lip yeah, synced, yeah. I threw it away. And my dad goes, "What are you doing?" And I go, "I'm just throwing that away. Why? Because it's 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 not even them. Well, they faked it." Dark. He goes, it's dark. Do, "Do you like the music?" And I went, "Well, yeah." And he goes, well, "Keep it." Yeah. Oh, okay. So I kept it. I think I still have it. Yeah. Did you, you did you keep it? I think it's in a box somewhere. Bring it in. Why? I don't know. Do we have a cassette player? I'll hang it on my wall. I have one in my car. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'll take it off your hands for $5. By the way, I mean, Jeff, you pay me $5. Jeff Liam Simpson is looking for all the cassettes he can get right now. Yeah. He's got the last cassette player in a car known to man. I currently have an audio book on cassette tape that I cannot listen to because they're so jammed into the uh, uh, holder. You can't get them out. I can't get them out. Hmm. So I'll never know what happens. Well, you know what? You ought to go down to... Like maintenance, they they'll get it out. <laughs> They've got equipment. Speaking of things that are that are blocked and yeah. blaming things on the rain, mm-hmm. uh, we went down to our basement laundry room last night to oh, discover no. that uh, everything that was in our sink at one point in time now came up through the drain in our laundry room. Ew. Ew. And Ew. apparently, my wife says that stuff like this happens when it rains. Blame it on the rain. Yeah. Yeah. Blame it on the rain. Yeah. So I had to bring my toothbrush yeah. to work today because we turned off all the water. Oh, is that what you were doing? And shaving yeah. your back? That was weird. <laughs> it's so weird when people go into the public restroom and brush their teeth. But to me, I, I just don't know what to do. Well, it's... Maybe their water is off. Do you avert your eyes? To, uh, I know, but I would, I would just like go to the drinking fountain and then I'd go brush my teeth outside and spit it. I, I wouldn't go near... A restroom to brush my teeth. A public restroom. And if you ever make eye contact with those people, it's always like, don't judge me. (laughs) (laughs) What? Holy cow. Well, I'm sorry about your uh, drain backage backing up. Here's the deal. Um, When you walked into your washroom, your your laundry room, did you have that fear come back through your mind of you almost being electrocuted Uh, by your dryer? I was more worried that whatever substance came up out of the drain was somehow going to be flammable. Yeah, good point. Wow. Did you Did you hire somebody to come fix it? You're not going to fix it yourself, are you? Let me just remember. <laughs> remember what happened last time. I just don't want you to – I kind of need you to finish the week, right? I don't want you to die. Yeah, just get to Friday. You're just saying that because you want to take off early on Friday. Boy. No, I don't. Come on. Come on. Hey, we got a great show today. We will be talking about uh, apparently Donald Trump's going to invest in America's infrastructure. That's what he keeps saying. I mean, but he's got to get the tax break done. He's right. got to get health care done. He's got to, you know, corrupt some Boy Scouts in a speech, apparently. They <laughs> depends on who you ask, I yeah. guess. I saw different opinions on all sides of that yesterday. Oh, yeah. It was pretty funny. But uh, the transportation secretary is Mitch McConnell's wife. Right. Right. Yeah. She's having a tough time. One of the first initiatives they tried to push a couple of weeks, was about a month ago, was they want to privatize air traffic controllers. Sure. Right. Sure. For some reason, that's where they wanted to start, and all they found is roadblocks every way from Republicans, Democrats. Everyone like, does anyone want this? Come on. What are you guys doing? And they're pushing this one initiative, and that's the first on their transportation infrastructure. 
they got bill be, that they're trying to put together. Seemed, they got to be careful because didn't air traffic controllers bring Carter down or Reagan? One of them had a major. I think it was Reagan. I think he went in and stopped. busted a strike or something. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, got to be careful of that. But I, so that's where they've started, and that's as far as this transportation thing is, has gone. If you remember on election night. That's the Trump goes out there to do his acceptance speech and starts talking about this transportation bill, infrastructure yeah. bill that he hasn't even talked about. So the Republicans on that at that point they're like, "What? What are you talking? What is about? happening here? But we don't want to spend more money." And he's talking about a trillion dollar plan. Holy cow! Well, we'll be talking about what is the best way to spend your money. When it comes to infrastructure, is it investing in transportation? Is it investing in communication networks? We will be also discussing how you decide because there's some pretty innovative ways to measure a network. Did you know that sometimes adding a new road only creates more congestion? And you would would know about that as the mayor of Taunton Abbey. As the mayor of Taunton Abbey, um, I have learned my lesson that you can't just throw a road anywhere you want a road. Or you might create congestion, and then that costs you a lot more money late. In fact, that reminds me. I, I really need to check in on Downton Abbey. It's been a while. So you've turned into every other politician. Well, I Just think what I— Just after a while, you stop paying attention. I've, I've hired good leaders to manage my Sim City. Oh, really? Wrong. And then um, I pay them well. Wrong. And then I like to check in on a quarterly basis. You just sort You're of wrong. show up and cut yeah. the ribbon. Cut a ribbon here. Hug a baby here, kiss right. you know, kiss a child. You're like here. the face of the administration, but you're not actually part of the administration. You're just sort of around. Many would say I am the administration. Well, you're not there though. Many would I'll say the facts. I put the men in the administration. All right, whatever that means. Minimum administration. <laughs> it's not ad minimumstration. Should be, <laughs> but it's not. You guys don't even know Towneton Abbey. You act like you know, but you don't know. We're a very tight-knit community. You sound like a teenager right now. (laughs) You don't know me. That's because I spend a lot of time with my teens. Mm. Gifts from heaven. Uh, We've got a great show today. We'll also be talking about some empty news, news you didn't even know you needed to know about. Plus, uh, holy cow, I'm liking uh, John McCain. Right. He came back after surgery with a brain uh, brain cancer diagnosis. And it seems like he's going to take everyone on. Like, this is crazy. Or he said a bunch of things that everyone can kind of get on board with. Criticize politicians, which, again, everyone can get on board with. Criticize the media, which, again, everyone Everyone can get get on board with. And then it's empty words and we go back to what we've been doing. Well, but the reality is it's a man that's dying. Right. And he's going to probably – he might very well be able to say everything that no one else dares to say. I wonder what that would be coming position. from you. Oh, you would not want to know. Who would you tell off? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell off anybody, but I'd definitely play Millie Vanilli. Yeah. By the way, and also the blues. I am getting so into the blues. Who's your favorite? B.B. Uh, King, of course. <gasps> Eric Clapton, you got to love him. Any others? No. Uh, Ray Charles. I don't know if he's um, bluesish. You do know that he lip he was a lip syncer. Ray. Yeah. Really? I'm sorry to break the news. What? Ray? Uh-huh. No, I don't believe it. Not my Ray. 
By the way, there's a whole movie out on him. You ought to highlight it on your show. Called Ray? Your show is called um, Screen Cleaning. Yeah. Fridays. I don't know if we'll be talking about that one. Ray Charles. Try it. So we'll get to all that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we should be paying attention to? The story of that semi-truck trailer in Texas with uh, undocumented immigrants that had uh, 10 people die in the truck. Apparently there was at one point over 100 people in the truck. What? The number keeps shifting around as I read. One of the people in the truck that died was a... uh, a, uh, a boy that grew up in Virginia, deported to Guatemala after graduating high school in Virginia. 19-year-old Frank G. Fuentes was brought to the U.S. as a child, shielded from deportation through President Obama's 2012 Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Uh, Jose Barillas, a Guatemalan consul general in Houston, told Univision that Fuentes was later deported after committing crimes and was later was trying to get back to his family who now lived in the D.C. area. So far, 10 people were traveling in the truck have died. It looks like this is going to turn into a big narrative of all the yeah. immigration problems that we're suffering through. Right. And uh, semi-truck trailers transporting people have been used since 1991 as they've cracked down on the border. So you can't. it's not as easy to walk across. So they're just coming across So we trucks. have somebody that we deported that then trying to come back died. We'll also probably hear a story or two of criminals that had been deported that were trying to make their way back in yep. that'll even out the storytelling but nonetheless 10 people died and now reports have the investigation looking at an ohio trucking company that owned the trailer leased it to somebody else who hired the driver who has a criminal record out of florida who'd spent time in prison in florida oh, wow. who didn't have a, a license shouldn't have been driving the truck and it's all connected to the mexican cartel known as the zetas or the Zetas, depending on how you pronounce it. But yeah, and, and they're pretty violent, and they kill people, and they're profiting off of mm. this whole problem that we Tragic. have with immigration. Uh, of the 111 brains of deceased National Football League players studied by neuropathologist Anne McKee, 110 of them had CTE, which is the degener- degenerative brain disease believed to cause... So 99 out of 100? They had 111 brains 111 donated, total. but they're all former NFL players whose family believe they had CTE. Yeah. So of those 111 brains, 110 of them had CTE. Now, she's saying it's the whole sample is there biased. There could be a sampling bias because anybody that thought their person had CTE would right. send the body and the brain in, but the but reality the, is... The preponderance of the numbers is numbers. a big number, and it's just showing that the problem is probably bigger than they talked about. So if you play in the NFL, you have like a 90-plus percent chance of having CTE. Right. So it's a big story. The, the one I found this morning that was more interesting, NPR reporting female athletes are very prone to concussions, but scientists don't know a lot about how it affects them because they almost exclusively study male athletes. Yeah. They don't oh, study the female brain. Right, and and they found in some very uh, preliminary discussions and, and uh, research about it, that the women, uh, female brains react differently to the concussion than men's brains, and really? they recover differently. And they recover. But they're not, they're not studying female brains, they're studying male brains. Why are even we when, not jumping on this even, faster? Even when it comes to mice that they use in like preliminary yeah. research, they use male mice, not female mice. It's so biased. Right? So they. Uh, Plus, it's so hard to fit a mouse for a helmet. It is. But just the idea, you know, if we're going to use animals, they tend to use male animals instead of female animals. I think part of that is because they feel like the pregnancy aspect of life changes the oh, female specimens, so they want yeah. to stick with the male. Yeah. And now they're saying, no, you can't do that because it's 
we've had this problem with medication, yeah. pain drugs and uh-huh. stuff. They Everything. only study males, no females. And so the when BMI you, that was only for men. When you give that, that the drugs to women, you don't know how they react. They react differently. And so it's all, all this problem in the just the research end of studying humans is now coming out that we're not studying females like we should. Well, I'm, I'm curious to know what they propose to do to just play two-hand touch or change the helmets. I don't know. But but mm. they're basically exposing mm. the fact that the NFL tried to cover it up for a long, long time. That's mm-hmm. kind of what I think this is coming to. But how do you fix it? I don't know. When your brain starts bouncing around inside your head. Didn't you, you mention one time on the show some sort of a collar that they put on that would be yeah. more effective than a helmet? Yeah, we had a, we had a cue collar. Yeah. We did a whole show on that. I don't know if it's more effective than a helmet in protect. I don't know. There's a, something about your brain stopping. Yeah. Meet, like at, at 80 miles an hour. It's just not meant to do that. It's, But it's an interesting thing. And why, again, are we so slow to kind of be jumping on this? Because this is every kid playing football, soccer, every cheerleader that gets a head injury because right. her catcher didn't catch her. Mainly because there's certain groups and they have lots of money and other people that get injured want that. Mm. As repayment for the injury they were trying to cover up for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's a scandal. It's, uh, there's, what's the movie with Will Smith? Is it called Concussion? No. I think it is. It, well, it, I yeah. think it was Percussion. No. It was about a drummer. No, it's about the doctor in that, Atlanta. The Not doctor that discovered CTE and mm. the efforts that went to squash everything he was trying to yes. put out there. And they tried to stop yes. him. And it's a very good movie. It was. It sounds like it. Wait, and Jack Bauer was in that one, right? CTE. No. Oh, that was CTU. Okay. Yeah, it was a CTU unit, and I think the show was percussion. There's not a lot of shows about a drummer. Uh, Whiplash. Come again. Whiplash was nominated for Best Picture a few years back. Great segue from brain injuries to Whiplash. Absolutely. <laughs> Ambulance chasing attorneys are. We've piqued their interest. <laughs> Anywho, got a lot of great stuff to talk about um, coming up. We will be speaking again with Anna Nagurney about uh, how America should invest in its transportation. Straight ahead, right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Talk about good. Missed your chance to tune into your favorite shows? With the BYU Radio app, you don't have to worry. Get hundreds of episodes of Highway 89, Top of Mind, The Matt Townsend Show, and all the rest right at your fingertips. It's free to download and available on iOS, Android, and Amazon mobile devices. Get the BYU Radio app today. Talk about good. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, think about it. The Internet, our highway system, our cell phones, all of our electrical grid, it all runs on systems. And with one major blow or an accident or another country, you know, wanting to take down these systems or an enemy wanting to take down the system, it puts us all at uh, at risk, uh, our national security, our personal security and uh, President Trump has, has vowed to uh, invest in our infrastructure, 
But what parts of the infrastructure would he invest in and what would be the best decision? And how do you decide where to spend these billions or hundreds of billions of dollars to strengthen our country and our infrastructure. Here to speak with us today about uh, this topic is Dr. Anna Nagurney, a professor of operations management at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Dr. Nagurney, thank you for your time today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. What Thanks a for um, the invitation. You bet. You bet. We need some insight here because apparently we are going to, according to our president, in, be investing in infrastructure but uh, really, infrastructure seems like, you know, it could be anything from freeways, highways, electrical grids um, to our our networks of Wi-Fi, our, our computer or uh, what do they call it? Our cellular networks. Talk about uh, networks and, and what are – because you're a systems expert. Talk about the, the power of a network and um, and how do we decide? When we think about uh, where we're going to invest our money, how do we decide where's the best investment? Sure. Actually, networks underpin our economy, as you were saying, Matt. Uh, They're extremely essential to productivity, to our everyday lives, and, of course, to our economy. Uh, However, it is imperative that we invest wisely because sometimes you might make very poor decisions that actually don't help anyone. They don't help travelers. They don't help the freight drivers. They might not even help our telecommunication networks. Mm. Uh, For example, there's this really famous paradox known as the Bryce Paradox that I've been working on for quite a while, uh, which says that if you add a road and you don't do it intelligently, you can actually increase the travel time for all drivers in the network. (laughs) So they actually would be better off without without it. It's, It's funny, but we just think add another road, just add another road. Exactly. No, that doesn't work because it's not just a matter of like the topology, like what's connected to what, which road is connected to which road, which rail lines are connected to which rail lines and so forth. It's what is happening on those roads. And if you think about travelers, they're actually, they're selfish. They want to choose the best route of travel to get from, say, home to work and also from work to home. And they're all competing for that kind of infrastructure. Okay, so it's actually like a big game theory problem. Mm. You might know of like uh, John Nash, the brilliant actually Nobel Prize winner in economics. It's really a Nash equilibrium game. So if you don't factor in like decision making or what's actually happening on these networks and how they perform and how they're operated, you could actually make very bad decisions. Well, and a lot of these networks, they're operating in like a decentralized manner. You can't tell me which route to take to work or which mode of transportation, right? right. And the Internet is similarly a decentralized network. So they operate really different than, say, a freight network where you can control, for example, how you're going to route the flows from different origin nodes, different cities, to other destinations, other cities, and so forth. This gets complicated, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's actually it's beautiful because if you think about networks, we can visualize them graphically. So people tend to understand that, okay? We abstract them in terms of nodes, which are like circles. Then we have arrows representing like roads or internet links. And we have different origin destination pairs uh, from which the traffic is generated. And then the flows are attracted to. 
and we capture the behavior. And the thing is, we're living in a nonlinear world. It's no longer a linear world. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of congestion. We have congestion in our roads. I don't know if you know, but typically uh, the average commuter in the U.S. wastes about 42 hours a week a year stuck in traffic. Oh, really? That's about as much as he or she gets in terms of vacation. And we're losing like $160 billion in productivity because people are stuck in traffic, okay? They can't be actually performing their jobs. Uh, You're wasting time, and you're also wasting energy, and that also adds to the pollution. So we do have, like, uh, great needs for investment in an infrastructure. It's extremely, extremely important, and not just in transportation, but also in telecommunications, in our electric power grid, our airports, our waterways. Come on, we're the best country on the planet. We should have the best infrastructure. And and are we not moving? We're moving also into a whole different era of, of like telecommunications, I mean, Wi-Fi, electric cars. There's other things that, we're, that maybe aren't even fully on the radar yet, but will be fully part of our life in 20 years. Yeah, exactly. And actually, I work in the area of super networks, mm. and these are networks of networks and uh, how different network systems actually interact. So the future is one of super networks is also the present because you're going to have the Internet and Wi-Fi controlling electric cars, for example. But how will they be routed? Will will they be routed in a way that's best for you and me so you get to work in the fastest possible time? Or are they going to be operated like in a central way so you minimize total cost to society? A lot of those questions haven't been answered. Okay, and also you brought up the issue of security and cybersecurity. We do a lot of work in t- terms of cybersecurity. That's another era, uh, area that we really need to invest in. Firms need to invest in because if one, say, financial services firm gets attacked, it might propagate through other financial services firms and so on. So that's an extremely important area as well. So it's interesting because we sit and talk about infrastructure, building the infrastructure, and Another goal of President Trump's is to to create jobs. And a lot of these infrastructure programs were supposed to create jobs. But so then that might complicate even the decision making as well. Like, where do we need the jobs? So let's find infrastructure decisions that we need to make in those areas. How on earth is anybody going to sort through it all? And how how should we go about making such decisions as to the most effective use of these hundreds of billions of dollars? Actually, with a collaborator of mine and a former doctoral student at the Eisenberg School of Management, Patrick Chung, we developed a network performance measure that's been applied to different transportation networks actually around the world. It's also been applied to supply chains, which is very, very important because it's not just a matter of mobility of people. It's also a matter of mobility of freight and goods. Mm. And if the goods are stuck, like at the ports, if the trucks can't deliver in a timely manner, that affects our global supply chains, affects the prices of the goods, and so on. So uh, we've adapted, actually applied our measure to different cities around the country, and they've also been applied in Asia, in Europe, and so on, to identify which are the most important like nodes and links to invest in, So if you invest in them, you actually have the greatest increase in the performance of the network. Hmm. 
which is really, really important because we want people to be able to get to their destinations as fast as possible at the lowest cost. The same thing for our goods. Yeah, you've got to – but it's interesting. You're making the decision based on data, um, exactly. but, but you're, you're saying that you can actually assess the performance. You have a network performance measure, so you can take every network, evaluate its performance numbers, and then you can even decide in the network which link, which – which connection, I guess, would be the most valuable connection to invest in? Precisely. And you can rank order them because there might be some, like the bridge to nowhere, that makes no sense to build. Right. Okay, So there's no sense in investing in those links that won't be used, Okay, no matter how well they're built. Okay, They're just not attractive. Okay, They're not needed for commuters. They're not needed uh, for workers. They're not needed for essential freight services. And that, that's really, really critical to figure out. And the thing is, it's not just, you know, the map topology. It's the economic activity that happens on our networks that's so, so important. Hmm. Okay. Does it, does it end up being – because it seems like if the government invests uh, in uh, mass transit and uh, trains and ways to move people, but the people are still wanting their cars – um, does does it end up enticing the people to get out of their cars and get into mass transit, or how do you how do you still allow the will of the people? Uh, you have to make the choices attractive to the people. I spend a lot of time doing research in other countries around the world and living in other countries, uh, for example, like Sweden, Austria. And the transportation systems there are fantastic. When I was a visiting professor at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, for example, I had multiple modes of transportation I could take to work. Hmm. I could walk. I could take a ferry. I could take a, a tram. I could take a bus. And everything would be like electronic. You would know when they would arrive and so forth. So you can make really, really good decisions. And it was a pleasure. And a lot of times, actually, different modes of transportation would be subsidized, like children would ride for free. Those who are, like, pushing strollers with kids in them would ride for free on public transit. Hmm. So I think we need things like that in the U.S., and it should be enjoyable. That's really important. I yeah, because – and ease, ease of access, ease of exactly. gathering the data. Exactly. We're we a, need to be reliable. We're having um, some situ- a situation here in Utah where a lot of companies are coming in. They call it Silicon Slopes. A lot of big national, international companies are coming. And we thought we had an infrastructure built with freeways, but it looks like – and they've just finished mega you know, work on freeways. But in yeah. the end, um, it's not going to be enough. And by the time 20 years, 30 years from now, we'll just be – we'll just – our car jams and, and locked in. How um, – so how does – how do you take existing networks and all of these decisions and then project it for the future need – um, as as the country seem and the population seem to be moving around. Okay, we can take our measure to identify which are the most important links and nodes that exist, and also you can look at different kinds of options in terms of where to invest. Okay, if we build a particular road here, what will that do to the network performance, the efficiency? What if we add uh, a different mode of transportation? For example, our, our work has been applied in Ireland to identify where they should add another, say, uh, subway link. Okay, it has been applied actually even in Indonesia to identify more effective shipping routes. Hmm. 
Okay, so that's like a freight service application. So that's really, really important to figure out uh, the projections in terms of demand, the needs, the capacities. But the thing is, if we're not even investing sufficiently in maintaining our existing infrastructure, I mean, we're really, in my opinion, in a crisis situation. We need $4.6 trillion over the next 10 years. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's that bad. <laughs> Is it really? Holy yeah. cow. Yeah. $4.6 trillion it, over the next 10 years. Exactly, exactly. Unbelievable. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Anna Nagurney, and Anna is a professor of operations management at the University of Amherst, or Massachusetts Amherst. She is also currently a fellow at Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. She's uh, doing that fellowship this summer. We'll continue the journey. When, uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about how these choices, how we're going to make the choices and find out uh, what Anna, where Anna believes we should be investing this money specifically. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Anna Nagurney, a professor of operations management at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, Anna is the author and editor of uh, 13 books, including the book Fragile Networks, Identifying Vulnerabilities and Synergies in an Uncertain World. Today, she's walking us through all of these decisions we need to make with our infrastructure. Anna, again, thank you for your time. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be on your show today. $4.6 trillion needed over the next 10 years. Uh, it seems like, okay, let's just say we could actually get $4.6 trillion. Um, it's, that actually sounds like the military budget, for heaven's sakes. Um, so, which might be a good place to get some of this and use the military to build some of this. Um, what do you think about how how should we go about spending the money? Where do you suggest... Are, would be some of the best investments, uh, telecommunications, transportation, water, electricity. Where should we be putting this money? I think some of the greatest needs are as follows. We have a total need of, say, uh, $2 trillion in surface transportation. Mm. Uh, when it comes to water, it's about $150 billion or so. Electricity, it's almost $1 trillion that we need to invest in. Also, our airports, our waterways, our dams. Our levees. Think what happened to Hurricane yeah. Katrina. Okay, and now we have the number of disasters is increasing, as well as the number of people affected by disasters. So I think the investment in infrastructure is even more important than it's ever been. Oh. And also in terms of rails, we need to invest about 154 billion over the next 10 years, and the schools too. Just like but the the dilapidated buildings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think th- this is a great opportunity, though. I look at it more as a positive challenge because hmm. it's kind of a win-win situation. Okay, You will create jobs. You will improve infrastructure. It improves the environment. Okay, uh, It makes everyone's life better. Yeah. Okay. Because it actually costs. If your car is going over, you know, rutted roads, bumpy roads, and so forth, it's going to cost you in terms of insurance costs, time, wear and tear, not to mention the frustration and stress. 
Okay, the same happens when it comes to our goods. Okay, we have we're in an era of global supply chains. We have inputs into our production processes coming from all around the world. If you have delays, then you know your cars get delayed. Okay, right. your goods get delayed. That costs time. That costs money. Okay, no one's happy about that. Manufacturers aren't happy about that, and neither are consumers. So it's extremely important, and also it's really, really important to be investing in telecommunications, okay, which is something typically the American Society of Civil Engineers doesn't really talk about. They're more into uh, kind of the roads, the waterways, airports, and so on. But telecommunications is essential. Look at like what South Korea is doing, for example. Everything is so high-tech. And sooner or later, as you were mentioning, we're really going to be in an era of Internet of Things, okay, mm-hmm. that connectivity. And to have the best kind of Wi-Fi, the best kind of Internet is going to be affecting our daily lives. It's going to be affecting our mobility. It's going to be you know, truly affecting our economy. So I think we, we have to go after this. I mean, we should be a role model for everyone on the globe, okay, and make – what do you think about private versus public? I mean, I look at a lot of these, um, and it seems like many of these really could be private endeavors, and it seems like right now is a good time for private companies to be investing in things like this. Uh, I completely agree with you, although I think we should have some caution. Uh, there have been some examples of private investors in terms of roads in the U.S., mm. for example, even a uh, Spanish company, for example, in Indiana, and they didn't figure out the tolling appropriately to recover the cost, and oh. there was like a fiasco, and the company <laughs> went bankrupt. And you know, some people might say, why are foreign countries buying, buying roads? roads? Okay? Right. Even my students kind of, really? That's happening? Yeah. I said, yes, it's high. but there, there are some really exciting opportunities. I don't know if you've heard about the FirstNet project, for example. No. It just happened a few weeks ago. AT&T got this major, um, it's about 4 to $6 billion contract uh, to provide very high-tech telecommunication systems for first responders hmm. in the U.S. So you'd have interoperability and so on. And it's going to be a, uh, say, at least a 10-year project. And they're supposed to be investing about $40 billion of their own money into that. And to pay back the U.S. government then to about like 4 to $6 billion. Wow. So I think that's really, really exciting uh, uh, project. And a lot of the states are now trying to partner, trying to decide whether that is actually the best thing for them. When you think of all the forest fires, for example, the wildfires are west, we need better communications, okay? The interoperability is extremely, extremely important for our first responders. I think that's a kind of a very, very neat project. And Google, for example, in Utah is building um, a uh, – they're building a, a network. It, it seems like having some of these companies that have a long-term interest in owning some of these networks – it might be a pretty smart way to do it, and then partnering with the government. Exactly. I completely agree. And a lot of the telecommunications companies also, they should be helping those in more rural areas when it comes to broadband and so forth. Now, here's my fear, Anna, because you um, you bring up a, a really powerful – the network performance measure that – we could actually measure every single solitary network and then rank them, put them in an order as to the greatest value to the people, of the mobility of people, the mobility of freight and transportation and cargo. 
But is is it that the system the government's going to use? It seems like it that the government doesn't usually operate that efficiently. And then I then Congress sure. gets involved, and yeah, that exactly. then it's whoever's you know. Then we have the bridge to nowhere. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, I think they should be good for their constituents. Okay. I think everything is more transparent now because of the internet. Okay, people find out uh, where, if the money is being well spent or not. So I think they have to be careful. They have to be cautious, and it's really time to move forward. Okay, I think this could be really, really exciting times because we can't fall behind in terms of competitiveness. Right. I really think we're essentially at the tipping point. Either we move forward, or things won't be good. Look at what China is doing. Uh, with the one road, for example, and connecting Iran to China, okay, moving Europe. The investments that they're doing internationally is just incredible, yeah. including in Africa, not just in Asia. And, it's, and it is, I mean, if you think about it, if, if we're going to be investing $4.6 anyway, we may as well invest it efficiently and quickly and uh, imagine the impact it could have on everybody. Yeah, precisely. Boy, and I guess probably the best handout we could have is to have a smart handout like that. Right, right, right. That employs and... It's good for the economy, it's good for everyone's health, because goods move faster, move better. Uh, There's less stress in the environment long term, because when cars are idling, they're polluting more. So Hmm. it just is... A win-win situation. Well, what advice? And jobs, exciting jobs. Exciting, exactly. And yeah. engineering and even STEM jobs, yeah. you can see, would come from this as well. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give as we wrap this up um, to the rest of us that are sitting in traffic all summer, wondering why they have to do road construction now, and maybe the complexity of these systems? Because you, you brought up a really interesting point with um, with the is it the the Bryce paradox. Um, that these systems are highly complex, and the people that are creating these roads generally have thought it through. Uh, yeah, what happens locally can have much broader impact because of the connectivity of the networks and the behavior of the users of the network. So that has to be taken into consideration when we do our investments, and it will be worth it short term as well as long term. Okay. Before you know, people forget about you know the construction, uh, the minor disruptions, and so on, because they can see the future. They can see the future for themselves, for their children, and ultimately, hopefully, their grandchildren as well. That's right, Dr. Anna Nagurney. Thank you so much for your time, your great insight. Again, Anna is a professor of operations management at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, walking us through uh, an article that uh, she wrote about the. Uh, the uh, effectiveness of our transportation and communication networks, how we decide where we're going to invest in America. Interesting insights, interesting life that uh, we've got ahead of us, folks. And uh, in the end, you know, it's still it's still our leaders that will be making these decisions. So we want to make sure we apply the right kind of pressure on them. Up next, we'll continue the journey, do a little Coach's Corner and get you the latest uh, information on how to be healthier, happier, and lead the kind of life you really want to lead. Up next on The Matt Townsend Show. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. (laughs) 
Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball. Welcome back, friends. You know, a while ago, I put together a, a, a workshop, a program that we video recorded um, to, and put out uh, about anxiety and stress because so many of my clients were suffering from anxiety. And I had no idea how successful it would be, but 170 people show up to, to take the class and uh, almost every one of them just just average Joes. These aren't, I mean, these are just average people, but they're stressed out of their head. And we got into some pretty interesting discussions. One of the discussions was about how you recognize that you're stressed out. I found a wonderful article on Huffington Post in their healthy living section, 10 weird signs that you're stressed out. Your body might be trying to tell you something. I wanted to run through that with you today so that you can start to sit, uh, determine, are you a stress case? Are you going, are you losing it? Are you losing your energy, your ability to focus? So a lot of the data shows that uh, more and more people are are stressed. And in fact, um, it can lead to some pretty significant problems, heart problems, sleep disturbances, depressive symptoms. Remember, stress and anxiety are sisters uh, with uh, depression. And so more and more people are depressed. Some, you know, blame it on the media and the news and, you know, politics there. A lot of people are just stressed, I think, simply because they watch too much TV and they're in the comparative social media network. So here's some signs that your uh, stress is actually that you might be a stress case. Number one, your muscles are throbbing, strained neck, tight shoulders, lower back pain for men may be a, a common side effect of stress. Typically, women experience issues in their upper backs. Um, so if all of a sudden you feel a lot of sore muscles, if you're if you feel uh, your muscles are throbbing and uh, it's probably because you're tense and all day long you're sitting there in a tense state. Another sign is that you have headaches. If you have consistent headaches, they call that the stress headache, that dull aching pain that feels like a band around your head. You, you probably have a stress headache. So then all of a sudden we start taking over the pain, over the counter painkillers like ibuprofen to relieve the stress, except if you take too many ibuprofen, then you get other stomach related issues because you're not supposed to chronically be in pain and taking ibuprofen that much. So pay attention to that. Another sign that you may be uh, having too much stress is you're thirsty. When you're feeling anxious, it can cause your adrenal glands, the small glands located at the top of your kidneys, to pump out stress hormones into your body. So sometimes when you have that pain back in your kidneys, it may be your adrenal glands working too hard. And that eventually leads to fatigue, right? And then a fluctuation in other hormones. And you can literally just fry your adrenal glands. And that's where all of a sudden... You get thirsty more, you get worn out, you get exhausted. Another sign is you're sweating a lot. If you have excessive perspiration, you may uh, have a a persistent uh, problem known as hyperhidrosis, and it can affect those who experience a little anxiety or more anxiety than than usual. You can try some stress-controlling tricks like taking deep breaths, listening to some calming music, maybe meditating in the middle of the day. If you're losing hair, if your hair is falling out, these are all signs that you may be too stressed. Uh, Too much stress can cause hair loss. Um, I guess telogen effluvium, which can cause your hair to fall out, uh, you know, as you're brushing it. 
scary. Other, there's a lot of other uh, issues that might be stress-related if you are losing your hair. Now, if you're just balding, that's a whole different thing. You're running to the bathroom a lot. If you're going to the bathroom a lot and you're not somebody that's hydrating and drinking a lot of water, then uh, it might be that anxiety is causing some digestion issues for you. That fight-or-flight response um, might be working on your digestive system as well. And uh, anyway, be careful of that. Some other basic ones, if you're not feeling too hot, if you feel like you always have a cold, if you have tooth troubles... A lot of jaw pain. A lot of people carry their stress by grinding or clenching their teeth and their jaw. Or if you see um, you're gaining weight or your memory is foggy. These are all signs that you may be stressed out. And by the way, I think Jeff and I just ticked off every one of those. Hmm. Even though Jeff, you know, just had his basement flood. Nothing to stress about, Jeff. It's all good. I hope uh, that helped. Not to stress you out, but go get some help. Go look at go look up uh, our program. Go look up other programs. Finding ways to de-stress. Up next, we'll continue the journey, helping you be the good in the world and live the healthier life that you want. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio.